Hey, this is Gordo. Uh, it's been so long. Sorry about that, lads. Uh, all will become clear in the next couple of weeks. Uh, what's going on over here at TCG Towers? Basically, um, lots of change. Lots of change in my life. Lots of change around the show. Uh, lockdown in Ireland is a cunt. Can't be making any more shows. And um, look, over the next couple of weeks, I'll let you know when it's all official and we're done. But uh, loads of changes happening. So apologies for the lackluster output. I know the season eight intro was all like, hey guys, weekly episodes and fucking, yeah. Um, but look at I'll hold my hands up and say, dreams can come true. But uh, also shit can go wrong. And I really hoped and deigned and, you know, planned for... Uh, weekly episodes and a proper recording schedule and all of that stuff and sure look at between lockdown and getting corona and having a baby and a whole load of other excuses that you probably don't care about because you just want to listen to episodes uh it's become a little bit more difficult i don't know if you can hear the hammering in the background uh, but next door has also become a building site and myriad other bullshit carry on reasons why episodes aren't coming out now i am trying my absolute best there's lots of stuff going on here in the background. Just want to let you know that I'm not taking the foot off the gas. Uh, there's lots of love still being poured into this whole project. And, you know, I love you guys for listening. And, uh, you know, thanks for still listening. This episode's a bit ropey. There are some serious chats. And if you are, I mean, I guess, <laughs> I don't want to be, you know, Gordon gives a trigger warning now. Fucking hell, man. 2021. But yeah, I mean, like, there's lots of um, rape chat in this episode. If you know anything about Eileen Warnos, you'll probably know it's not for the faint of heart. But um, look at just mind yourself. There's lots of chat about sex work and prostitution and sex attacks and rape. And it, if it's going to annoy you, if you're going to be fucking sending me messages about it, just don't listen. Just don't bother listening if you're, if you're going to get affected and send me shit. Like I'm ignorant of blind spots. There's shit that goes on that I don't know about. And if no one's allowed to talk about it, none of us will fucking know what the hell is going on. So I want to be able to talk about it at the level of knowledge that I know and then to be able to be informed so instead of fucking sending me a stinking email or trying to get me cancelled or some bullshit why not go hey do you want to talk about it I'll tell you what you don't know much more constructive uh, and you know I'll go on into the future knowing a little bit more as will the rest of the listeners so there will be a live chat about this I said it on the show a couple of times it'll be in the next couple of weeks and it'll be soon so listen to this jot down your ideas that you want to say and, you know, look out for the live chat link and join me there and tell me all about, you know, what ways I'm wrong. I definitely don't know nothing about sex workers. Uh, and I know very, very little about rape. I'll tell you that now. But, like, being the straight white man, it doesn't stop me from having an opinion. Right, girls? <laughs> it's just I don't want, um, I don't, I don't want it to be, like, this is the definitive work. Like, come and fucking talk to us about it. There's shit going on now. Young one's being snapped up off the street and murdered and... There's lots of chat online and fucking, you know, celebrities doing all sorts of rapings and all sorts of stuff happening. And it's like, uh, hey, man, sit down, shut up, listen to women. So I want to do that. Let's do a live chat. Let's get some people on. If you're able to talk about it, cool. Uh, but if you're getting triggered and annoyed and sending me messages saying shut up, that's kind of, I, I think, against the point. This woman's story is fucked up and there's lots to be talked about. Anyway, hope you enjoy the show. There will be more. Dennis Nilsson's coming next Monday. Chalk it down. And uh, Montauk Project the Monday after. So I am trying to get back to as regular as possible of an output. But just a little message to say, uh, sorry about that. Love you guys. Okay, enjoy the show. Hitler, Roswell, JFK. 
everyone, welcome to another Dose Conspiracy, guys. This time, we're talking about a really fucking relentlessly grim tale. Get ready with the box of tissues and not in a good way for this episode. This is this is an episode about Eileen Warnos. Charlize Theron played her in the movie Monster, prostitute with a heart of gold and a trigger finger that was itchier than her fanny. Serious shit going on in this episode. This one's this one's darker than Wesley Snipes' gooch. This is fucking, this is dark. A prostitute who killed seven men in Florida in the early 90s and, uh, and went to court and said it was self-defense and then got sent to the gas chamber to be executed. Fucking terrible. Now, we've done a lot of male serial killers and often they have a really bad start. And this is uh, a a quote-unquote America's first woman serial killer. And she had an equally bad start, but got on the internet an awful lot more empathy slash sympathy, I think. But on those conspiracy guys, we're going to chat today about Eileen Warnos. And joining me in the hot seat is my good friend and uh, very entertaining lady, knowledgeable and uh, fantastically talented in many ways, in many, many ways, uh, Grania McKeever. Hello, thank you. What a nice um, introduction there. Yeah, I, you, you told me not to say a lot of stuff about all the stuff you've ever done. <laughs> and I would have been here for 20 minutes and then naming out your accolades. But um, it's great to have you in the studio. Thank you so much for having me. I've been meaning to get on board for so long. So yeah, it's great to finally be here. We're doing this for years. Um, there's a, a flurry of recordings. This is one of the, the big recording binges that we're going to do. And uh, she said, like, why not have you on for, have a, you know, representation yeah, I love uh, the way you've chose uh, me specifically for to speak about a female serial killer. Like, <laughs> will we tell the truth to the people at home? Because I said, "What's your favorite serial killer?" You were like, "Oh, can we do the one with the face and the thing?" <laughs> I want to do that one, Bagsy Dash. That's what fucking happened on the phone. Don't tell a lie. Um, yeah, this is this is you're 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 you have a background in sociology. Yeah, so just finished up a PhD in sociology and I also lecture in social psychology. So I've actually already lectured about um, Eileen Wernus in various different classes that I teach. So yeah, I'm interested now to like apply this and have a really juicy conversation with somebody. It's usually me just kind of spouting along whatever I feel, but it's great to have a little... You do you. Make it. Whatever (laughs) comes out, comes out. I want to get deep. I want to get hard. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to, this is it. So whatever you have. Me and Eileen, Wesley Snipes Gooch all night long, baby. It's dark. <laughs> it's dark. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you have, you have that background. Um, what did you know of Aileen before, or, or Eileen, Aileen, Eileen? What did you know of Eileen before you even started studying about yeah, it? Yeah, you remember, like, when we initially had the conversation mm. about maybe doing this podcast, um, I was saying that initially, like, my introduction to Eileen Warnus was the movie. I don't think it ever, obviously it wouldn't have come on my radar. Sure, it was only a, only a, Sparkling my father's eye, slip of a laugh. Yeah, well, I would have been little anyway when yeah, the, yeah. when she would have been on trial or whatever. But um, yeah, it was the movie, I suppose, that brought her into my mind anyway. But remember telling you that just like how like you know controversial con- it, like it, it just became this kind of bone of contention between me and my friend. So we watched the movie together. We were having a slumber party. My friend was staying over. As you do, and we watched the movie. And like obviously the title, I had seen the the trailer for the movie and things. The title of the movie, I think, implies the whole kind of idea of the movie is that like a monster that society created. That's what I read from the movie, right? That's what I would have thought. Okay. So we watched this movie and like, it's, I mean, it's horrific. It's graphic. There's nothing left to the imagination in the movie. At one point, she's being raped with a crowbar while she's been punched. She's 
completely unconscious. And I, I think like, you'll find it was a wheel brace. Was it a wheel brace? Excuse yes. me. Yeah, well, sorry. My technical knowledge wouldn't be as, yeah, yeah. as fancy as yours. To loosen the nuts on the wheels. <laughs> And other things. <laughs> yeah, so like, oh, your cervix I mean, is a bit tight there. I'm just going to loosen it up for you. I was watching this in total and utter horror, like mm, total mm. horror. In a slumber party. I know. Yeah. And then, like, at the end of me, my friend turned around to me and she was like, oh my God. She was like, did you see them kissing? We tried that. <laughs> no, it wasn't, wasn't that? quite like that. No. Right, right. She just looked at me and she goes, oh my God. Like, I was like, tears streaming down my face, like the empathy and the sympathy I felt for this woman. Yeah. And my friend just looked at me and she goes, God, she was evil, wasn't she? What the fuck? And I was like, exactly. I was Are like, we watching the same film. Like, yeah. So I was like, I'm sleeping on the couch tonight. Like we were an old married couple. I was like, I am sleeping on the couch tonight. Can't you can take the right bedroom. I, yeah. I don't even want to see you. Yeah, so yeah. Um, yeah. So I think like that exact, like that exact thing is why it became such a kind of a media furore because yeah. it divided people. It divided people in the same households. It divided friends. It divided um, communities of people who were kind of torn between. Like, what does this mean? Like, in in terms of significance of this for society, what does it mean? I think you know? when it, it really blew up when uh, Charlize Theron won the Oscar and people were like, what's she win the Oscar for again? Who this bitch is? Oh my God, she looks rotten. And yeah. it was like, we'd already seen, you know, Nicole Kidman become ugly for uh, something like uh, The Hours or not even The Hours. One of those movies where she puts on a nose and uh, she's like, I've transformed. And everyone's like, bitch, you put on a fucking... Plasticine nose, like relax. Uh, but Charlie's Theron like put on thirty pounds of weight, yeah, and, like, shaved, shaved her off eyes. her eyebrows yeah. and <laughs> fucked up her skin and all this stuff, like just to, just to get into it. Which is basically my entire teenage period. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> described right there. Yeah, shaved yeah. off my eyebrows. <laughs> essentially, they were tiny. <laughs> just those little. Put on a bit, a bit of puppy fat. <laughs> line. Uh, freshman fifteen, is it? Uh, I put on a freshman like sixty five or whatever. Uh, but yeah, it's it's fucking. It's so. It's so odd when you're watching the movie. We watched we like rewatched it last night just to get in the mood for doing the podcast and not fretting else. And uh I came away from it like feeling empty and hopeless and a little bit kind of like the world is totally fucked. And I'm watching stuff all day every day for my job that would make yeah. me think that anyway. But this was like extra that. And it was a, f- a fabrication mm-hmm. that wasn't even as as grim as the actual yeah, real yeah, truth yeah. as well. There was like happy endings. There was love and there was connection and there was yeah, all yeah. this kind of stuff that's implied in the real life story, but dramatized in a movie format is is like, yeah, okay, I can feel it. But also, ugh, do you know? It didn't um, go into yeah. the aftermath. It didn't go into the stuff afterwards. I watched a bunch of Nick Broomfield documentaries that were absolutely spectacular that told a real story. And it's even worse again. Like and what they're again, doing. Like to what her. we never ever truly see is her in her own terms. It's yeah. always kind of through the help of her lawyer, through the help of her adopted mother, or through the yeah. kind of eyes of her lover, or a former childhood friends, or whoever. We don't really ever, and I'm not sure it would have been possible to have ever really gotten a stable discussion from herself because she was so, I mean, she was just so unstable I suppose towards it as, as anybody would be she was like her back was entirely to the wall she there was no way out she had already experienced the worst of the worst from everybody from the cops to her family to her lover to everyone everyone had kind of let her down so she just she she just I, I just got to the point where she just didn't give a fuck basically like that, she, that does happen mm. so in regards to like your lectures and stuff that you'd be um Lecturing, what was it? What did you say? Psychology. Uh, social psychology. Social psychology. Mm-hmm. With regards to social psychology, like what aspects are we do it later on? What aspects of the Eileen Morno story were you 
kind of using her as an example of like nature over nurture. Or yeah, exactly. Nature over nurture. That was, it's so, it's socialization. How do we mm. come to be the people that we are? How are we formed to, like how much of Mostly our- Mostly cake. Yeah, me. Me, me too at this yeah. point. COVID, yeah. COVID has not been friendly to my- <laughs> Banana bread. <laughs> <and> fucking, <laughs> what, do you, what makes you up? Uh, I don't know, pasta, a lot of pasta. Yeah, but like when we think about it, like how much of me is, like one of the main lines that really stuck with me from that movie was she would mess uh, Tyria Moore at the bar and they had they had just kind of met and she said, oh, you know, it's all circumstantial. Like everything in life is circumstantial. It's about where you, and it, that, like, that was her theory was yeah. that it was environmental, you know, like it was, it was, you know, nurture it was where you surround yourself, who the people that you end up with have a huge part to do with it. I mean, like when you think about it, hormones, teenagers, how much hormones are racing through people's body or like. Um, Running up to down the legs of your trousers. But then, like it's just like the, how much of me or you is really just totally unique and original to you or how much of it is the people that you've surrounded yourself with or the shitty childhood that is in particular in relation mm. to, to this story um, to um, Eileen Morris like a shitty like the most shitty kind of childhood like she was abandoned as a baby mm. she was raised by her alcoholic grandparents who she who she believed to be her own biological parents yeah. until she was 11. Spoiler alert. There's going to go through all this. Sorry, yeah. No, no, it's cool, but like... So all of these all things like to totally distort your... Like would distort mm. anybody's view of themselves. But um, yeah, like a large proportion of how we get to understand our identity and who we are is the people that we surround ourselves with and the role that we find within that group. And for her, I just feel she was this tragic figure who was never really found a group. Like actually one of the documentaries that I watched, there was one of her childhood friends, childhood friend, mm. sorry, in inverted commas, who um, was quite disrespectful about her. But he said that when she eventually did leave the town, when she was, this was after she had given birth and had the grandfather and the grandmother had put her into a home for unwed mothers at the age of 14, yeah. forced her to put the child up for adoption. Soon after that, she dropped out of school and then she became homeless. He kicked her out, actually. Yeah. Um, I think the grandmother died and then he kicked her out. We'll go through all Sorry. of that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Spoiler but, alert. All yeah, this whole spoiling thing. all the good yeah, stuff yeah, right yeah. now, all the juicy bits. But yet this guy said that basically, like, nobody cared when she had left. Like, people were actually glad that she had left. You know, even though she was kind of the butt of everybody's joke, the the kind of person who everybody used within yeah. the group kind of was this kind of scapegoat for the ta- everybody. The town bike. Like yeah. That kind of thing, yeah. That she was, that nobody cared. Like, so she just never seemed to find a place where she belonged. And then she kept scrambling and scrambling and searching for, for places to be. And belonging to a group and finding your role within that group and the way that you are perceived by other people in that group has a huge effect on how we develop as an individual, how we see ourselves. But there's loads of elements then to the stuff that happened to her, like you said, abuse and sexual abuse and, you know, normalisation of, uh, I guess, negative, toxic environment, all of that kind of stuff would play havoc with your self-esteem and your own self-image, which would make you make bad decisions about who the people are that are good around you. So obviously, like, the people she was choosing to be around were the reflection of her inner self. Like sometimes like when you want to just be, you want to just be bad, you go and hang out with the bad kids in school and you're like, yeah, I want to s- s- pretend to smoke fags and fucking, you know, like, 
I am yeah. really stoned off this roly fag or whatever. Yeah, but often so you go people. Into, I think she was maybe like. Yeah, but it's it's like the initiation. You've described it perfectly there. Like the initiation into certain types of groups. Yeah. Like so, if you wanted to be part of the jocks or the cheerleaders, or whoever you know, they're like as Irish kids, obviously we have none of those in Irish yeah. schools, but we have Irish versions of yeah, those. The happy hurlers of the jocks. Yeah, the hurlers or whatever. But like, yeah. like if you want to be in the hurlers or the jocks kind of cool group of guys, the the standards on the initiation to get into that means you have to be incredibly athletic. You have to be suave. You have to be cool. You have to be all these things physically. You know, there's a whole load of uh, characteristics you have to have to mm. get into the group that you're talking about, the bad group. The only thing that you have to really do is accept the negative behaviour that they're doing, which is so, uh, smoking cigarettes or whatever. It's a well, lot easier to initiate yourself into that group it, than it is. It depends on it depends on what's your internal mm. engine, right? Mm. So if you have like a decent background and you have a like a a deeply ingrained like positive moral code and all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. you are going to have characteristics that are not compatible with that lifestyle because you're going to go in there and everyone's going to be doing drugs and the minute somebody asks you about it you can't lie so you'll be like oh we're all doing drugs and get everyone in trouble yeah. so you won't be ingratiated into that group it's very hard for somebody who has like very good self-esteem you know a decent upbringing to debase themselves mm. right but, but it's a lot harder to get from a debased level like, you know, Eileen Warnos was very, like, naturally at a debased level. It's very hard to rise up. You yeah. can't go get a job so because, as a lawyer you know, when you like, have a teeth like a vandalised graveyard. You think about, like, her initial, like, her primary socialisation within the family that she had, which mm. was her grandparents, who she thought were her parents, and her two, I think they had two older, who were, like, her her aunt and her uncle, essentially, yeah. she thought were her brother and such. And then her, her brother, Keith, who really was one of the few people who, despite their many, many ups and downs, and the fact that they had an incestuous relationship yeah. as children, um, was one of the very few people that she did. So many spoilers. You know, actually... <laughs> So many spoilers. But th- as you say, that primary socialisation unit mm. of the family was not functional at all. There was I nothing know. functional about yeah. that. That's what so I'm saying. She so she had really those, low self-esteem, yeah. which would attract shitty people. Totally, totally. And they would not, she would let them in. She would also signal for those people yeah. to come to be like, well, um, I don't like myself, uh, which means like you probably won't like me. Uh, what do boys like? Tits. Um, if I show you my tits, will you be friends with me? And then mm. she'd be showing her tits. And getting lads to be giving her cigarettes. And she was like, oh, here's my tits. You show your tits to people too for cigarettes. I know, but, like, but I stopped smoking years ago. <laughs> and then my tits we all show our really titties big. for ciggies every yeah. once in a while. <laughs> Ain't nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean... But uh, yeah, so in sociology, we would call that like what you're talking about, that that protection she should have had from her family. It's called intergenerational closure. So intergenerational closure is a part of social capital. So the social capital that she would have had as part of being part of a a family, um, that would have ensured a certain type of closure. If she had the values, if they had, if she came from a family that had a distinct set of, let's say, Christian values, for example, or whatever type of values that they had, like a strong set of values, there would have been a certain amount of intergenerational closure coming from the top which would have ensured that she wouldn't be showing people her titties for, for, for cigarettes or whatever else. She would be else. looking for external validation exactly. she would have felt she like would, well, she would have come felt, from somewhere. Well no it would have been more like she would have felt like she had to make sure that she was uh, continuing to get the validation from her primary unit. Do you get me? Oh, right. So she so wouldn't want to. That supply of validation was on some other set of circumstances and she wasn't getting that validation so she was like well I want to feel validated. She wouldn't want to upset the apple cart is the apple so, tart or the apple cart? Apple cart. <laughs> well, I think either either one, either one, apple tart or apple cart. No, either one, like, you're still looking for validation. So if you have yeah. a really, like, I see these TikToks, you know, 
and somebody is like, do you ever have that life where you had to dress like a basic bitch and just have like generic clothes and like khaki pants and then as soon as you left home you got to be your 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 real self and it's like people that are just like haircut normal bangs like a top from the gap khakis like jandals or like you know fucking you know whatever uh, uh, uh reebok classics or whatever normal 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 american looking kid and then it cuts at the end and they're all like a million piercings and their head is shaved and they've got like dick shaved into their head and they've got like fucking uh, you know f- facial implants and all these like piercings and all this kind of shit and they're like I could be my real self now because they were in a controlled conservative yeah. environment so they couldn't actually be themselves like we talk about it more at the end but like which is worse you know yeah, so like uh, if you're in a really conservative family, yeah, so like the Amish, the Amish community have this thing. I don't know if you know about it, the Rumspringer. Yeah, they get to go off and fucking go. Yeah, so bu- they book wild. Yeah, they have these like I mean, they have such a conservative lifestyle. Really, no television, no media, no anything, mm. and um, then they just go demented. Obviously, when they get but, the opportunity, but they to. get the option to not come back to the Amish life if they don't want to. If, yeah. If, if you feel like uh, the outside world is for you, uh, you can just stay out there in uh, New York City or wherever. You yeah. know, they're allowed to. It's like the fucking uh, Westboro Baptist Church as well. As soon as they figured out, like, oh, this is a cult, fump, I'm out. And they and they abhor that set of values. But then they ended up, a lot of them, when Louis Theroux did that documentary, he went back like 10 years later or whatever, and he found like a bunch of them ended up like doing drugs and doing, they're just going mental for a while and then kind of settling down because it was so restrictive, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. I think I think Eileen, coming from a shit place, almost drew more shit to her because that was her... That was what her core was made up of. Yeah. Well, she was beat. She was. She maybe she didn't. To, to be honest, like a ten-year-old child, maybe genuinely didn't realize that she was being disrespectful to herself by yeah. offering herself sexually normalized. to. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, you know, she maybe didn't realize that she was being preyed on by slightly older children. Yeah. You know, so it would have been like the social where she just was doing it innocently thinking, okay, look, they're accepting me into the group or they're letting me hang out. There was a place that they used to hang out called the pits. Mm. And um, you know, just the fact that she was a she was allowed to be there and she had a function there and she had a role there and she was accepted and welcome there to a certain mm. degree. And maybe it did start out innocently that she just really wasn't aware that there this was the the fact that the sex was a currency for her there was a, a negative thing and then before she knew it it became it was very part of her identity it was part of her identity it was quite perfunctory for her to have yeah. sex for money and it just didn't seem like and even I remember her friend Bodkin I've forgotten this Diane Bodkin I think was who was one of her kind of closest childhood friends but then stayed in contact with her even up until her, her last days and um, just kind of that she talked about how she, when she didn't know the word prostitute when they were 10, 11, obviously. Yeah. And she didn't, she just knew that Eileen was having sex with the guys for cigarettes and food and whatever and loose change. But the, 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 oh, that's unusual that you're doing that. Well, I don't really want to do that. But if you want to do it, that's grand. But didn't understand the concept of prostitution, obviously, at that time and place. So, yeah, there was no, tra- it wasn't a transactional thing. It was more of a uh, an acceptance. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. For a child of 10, Absolutely. Yeah. It's fucking weird. It's such a weird start. It's a very weird start for life. Like, Let's put on our snow boots and get into it. Do it. Let's just get in. We, we, we'll tell this story now as well as we can. There's a, a, obviously a feature film, like we said, and there is a, a brace of a, a Nick Broomfield documentaries, one from 94 and one from 2002, uh, one just after incarceration and one just after execution. Another spoiler. Yeah, man, it's a fucking crazy story. Even that little chat there, you're like, Ugh, do I want to? Um, if there's anything in the show that uh, tickles your kicker, you want to reach out or it uh, kind of, you know, uh, inflames your 
opinionated ardor. You want to jump in and say, I don't think that's right. Or even just say, hey, that was brilliant. Well done. Something like that. Uh, info at those conspiracy guys is the email address. We're on all the social media and there's a link in the description below. Uh, you can click on that and see whatever we're still left on. Um, fuck Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. Uh, but if you want to DM me, I can give you an invite to the cool place where the cool kids hang out for the TCG Discord server uh, where there's a chats, video chats, audio chats. Uh, there's loads of different channels for every single episode. Uh, everything's broken up into seasons, topics. Um, it's a great little community. There's about 3,000 people in it there at the moment at the end of 2020. And uh, we're all having fun. If everyone from Twitter and Facebook or anyone that listens to the show, you want to get extra stuff, you want to get shared links, you want to get uh, notifications of, uh, you know, live chats and all this kind of crack, Discord is the place where I'm putting most of my social media time now. Having conversations, moderating the conversations between fans where you're not like, you know, worried about Mark Zuckerberg eating your fucking dinner over your shoulder. Uh, fuck all that shit. Discord is the place to be. So jump on it. Uh, there should be like invites and stuff in the magic link below. And uh, this is streaming live on the video internet machine to the wonderful people at Patreon who are uh, the most generous and wonderful folks uh, that ever could be supporting this show through patreon.com slash those conspiracy guys they get to watch it for five dollars and up and if you want to watch them live over the next couple of months five bucks patreon.com slash those conspiracy guys click the link below if you want to get in and watch them uh, if not you're going to have to wait until they're released and then when you're listening to them and you're like oh these ads are really annoying you can for two dollars get into patreon.com slash those conspiracy guys and you can listen to these shows ad free on a, a private RSS feed. So basically, it's all the good stuff for the fans. If you want to get it uh, in a, a an easier to access or more uh, uh, visually appealing way, uh, it's all on Patreon. So let's just get into it. Let's uh, let's uh, you know slip right into uh, Eileen Mornos. Uh, I mean, metaphorically, obviously. Uh, so uh, Eileen Mornos was born Eileen Carol Pittman on the 29th of February, 1956. You see, there you go. She's already born on a leap year day that only comes up once every four years. Uh, that's already bad luck, right? She was America's first serial killer with seven men shot dead and a string of petty crimes behind her. Warnos was tried and convicted in 1992 and put to death in 2002 for these murders in Florida by lethal injection. Uh, Lee, as she was like to be called, uh, Lee Warnos was born in Rochester, Michigan and grew up in Troy, Michigan. Her mother abandoned her just a few months after she was born and uh, her older brother Keith was left with Eileen uh, with her father and uh, her father was in and out of institutions and prisons for abusing children and being a sexual deviant. Would you believe it? And eventually he killed himself in prison when Eileen was just four years of age and uh, he was convicted for kid for kidnapping and then raping multiple times, raping an eight-year-old boy and he was sent to jail for it and then he killed himself in jail for it. So, I mean, if you're, if you're talking about a bad start, that's And again, probably, it kind of that nature-nurture thing, like how much, like in what way can we account for our genes, you know? Is it possible yeah. that there is a kind of a, a gene there that, you know, preempts us to having certain tendencies towards... Yeah, like um, schizophrenia, autism, 
some of these like yeah. Uh, well, she was diagnosed with schizophrenia and bipolar. Um, oh, sorry, he or, sorry he was yeah. her father was diagnosed with schizophrenia, but she was um, diagnosed as a sociopath. She was or as a psychopath. Psychopath and, she was and also borderline personality borderline disorder, person- well. antisocial personality disorder. Yeah. Like, but that wasn't brought. The, the kind of big thing there is that wasn't brought into account in terms of her death sentence. Like, no. you know, and there's been a huge kind of thing about that since people with we, we major about it at the end, yeah. okay, yeah, mental health issues and like it just it shouldn't be. So, yeah, well. I mean, it's like in in Texas where they're putting people who have like fifty five IQ, like they kill them with their love, boss. You know mm. this kind of stuff. You know, like like the drink on and not spelled the same. And you're like, you're not supposed <laughs> to fucking kill those. They don't know what they're doing. You know. Mm. Um. So yeah, they were put in the care of uh, their grandparents, Keith and Eileen, and her grandfather was also very abusive. And according to the documentaries and to um anecdotal tales because Eileen was was wont to do uh, a few little interviews and write letters and stuff back and over she thinks that her grandfather who she was sent to live with is actually her biological father and a product of rape for her mother yeah I mean that's fucked it is Um, so yeah I mean obviously you know if you're giving birth to a a baby who's a product of rape it's probably a lot more difficult than like a re- like I don't say like a regular conception but it's obviously there's emotional ties and triggers and stuff associated with all of that mm-hmm. that might be be triggering her also she was I guess like mentally unstable after all the abuse mm-hmm. the grandmother then died of uh, a year after uh, Eileen had been dropped off at the house mm-hmm. so it was basically like Keith Eileen mother abandoned father killed himself abusive grandfather was all that was left to take care of her at like what, six years old, seven years old? Yeah. Like, that's rough, man. That's a fucking real bad yeah, there's, hand yeah, to there's, be dealt. There's, like, where can you really go from there, mm. you know? You'd have to be, like, some kind of super saint of a person to, to ensure that you kind of... Or, when you think about it from a sociological sense, how, like, given all of that, where could she have gone? Like, how, like, how would she, how would she have had to have um, made herself fit found herself a role within society. Like, what could she have done to have contained herself? And the, But she also had huge, like, anger fits the whole time growing up. Mm. She was in very... And again, with the other children, this was something that came up a lot. That she was very angry all the time, had these outbursts. But you can totally understand of a child who's been abandoned, multi, like, multiple times. Well, she got the shit kicked out of her from, like, one to four mm. by her by her stepdad, right? And then the mother abandons her mm. with abusive grandparents. But then and then the dad like goes in and out for fucking doing sexy things, and then he dies, and then you're left with a grandfather who abuses you, and then a grandmother who dies. So you're just basically handed from one abuser to another one. Yeah, but it's like all that kind of bottled up, pent up anger. But she didn't. She like unleashed her anger. I guess that's where there's a huge kind of feminist issue then around Eileen yeah. as well. Is that people kind of feel like maybe the reason the trial got such an amount of um, kind of media attention and everything else, part of it was this very, very aggressive, openly aggressive, openly angry woman. And are women allowed to behave in that way? Or should women be allowed to behave oh. in that way? So there's a kind of, yeah. you know, kind of that kind of bone of um, contention as well. Then it kind it's of divides like a look, lot of people. Looking past the murder into like uh, feminine assertiveness. Yeah. You're like, oh yeah, but she, look, she only killed him last, she's just being assertive. Yeah. Do you know? <laughs> like America, anybody was saying that America's first <laughs> female serial killer. You're but, hired, but she was only getting like seventy two percent of the attention that a male serial killer would have gotten the media or something yeah. like that. You know, wage gap. So, no, 
Did it land? I got you. Okay. I was just letting it swing right over there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying, people will overlook it, and we look at a lot of fucking serial killers on this show, mm. and like mothers have a lot to answer for with these lads going out raping and killing people and chopping off their heads and fucking their throat holes and yeah. fucking somebody and then burying them and then digging them up six weeks later and oh, fucking stop. their decomposing corpse Who again. did that? Who fucking Ted did Bundy. that? Oh, for fuck's sake. Like, a load of, load of lads would do that shit. Do you know? It's obvious, really, One lad's you like, think about it. Like. Cut off an arm and, like, wank himself <laughs> oh, off with no. a cut off arm. So you did know? he keep the arm close by? Or? No, no, no. He got rid of it after the wank. But it was just, like, I didn't want it attached to anyone. <gasps> Very weird, very weird, but like obviously something happened. Yeah, so there is like, I mean, there seems to be a major pattern. I've just finished watching, I don't know if you've watched it, The Fall. No, not yet. Yeah, Gillian well, Anderson. Yeah, um, Jamie Dorn naked multiple times. Very okay, nice. Nice. Watch it. It's fantastic. But if you want a story about a serial killer and a fucked up kind of background, it's juicy. It's okay. good. I just um, think that Aileen uh, or Eileen is getting too much. A lot of feminist attention, even though she's a serial killer. That'd be like saying, like, yeah, you know, um, I don't John, Wayne, John know. Wayne Gacy. John Wayne Gacy is an LGBT hero because he was willing to overlook his like uh, high high society Freemason type background to have sex with young boys in his rec room in the basement of his house. But then, like. Because society wasn't accepting of the LGBT, you know, decisions that like men in power were going to make, he had to kill those young boys and bury him under his porch. Yeah, like so, society no, forced him into like not only fucking young boys, but but then like putting them under the fucking porch because he was afraid of getting caught for being gay. Like that's the same logic as saying Aileen Warnos is a feminist hero. Like it's not. She's kid. We'll, we'll we'll talk about the actual crimes in the uh, uh, yeah the uh, the the. the Execute. I don't want to say the execution, but the execution of the crimes, like the doing of the crimes, yes, yeah, yeah. was very much like kind of in self defense and stuff. But we we'll talk about it in a second. Um, she she wanted to escape the confines of this household, this oppressive household that she was living in. So from just ten years old, she would live in the woods at the end of the street in a little shack she built, and she'd live in that and sleep in that instead of going home at night time. This led to then a whole lifestyle of vagrancy, truancy, presumably dr- drug use, alcohol use, uh, and then risky and promiscuous sexual behaviour. So it was the 60s, and there was these uh, kind of damaged veterans coming home from Vietnam. They were fucked up in the head, and some of them were out to to do damage. They were fucked up, you know. Um, they wanted to possibly exert some sort of a you know power role, and uh, a lot of these guys ended up getting arrested for like sexual crimes they wanted to maybe prey on unsuspecting teens in the area one of these guys was called chief that was his nickname and he hang around and he had like a a native american headband and all this kind of stuff and he was in his in his uh, early 40s and he groomed loads of these kind of vagrant children around the area and he'd have them like come over to his caravan or his his mobile home and uh, they'd drink a few you know, a few beers, maybe have a bit of whiskey, smoke a joint. And then he'd be all like, show us your box or whatever. And uh, he had like young lads touching him and giving him blowjobs. And he even like had sex with Eileen loads of times. And he would, you know, rape and molest all of these kids uh, in this Mich- Michigan area. And he's actually thought to be the father of the child that she had when she was 13. Right. That's who got her pregnant, is yeah. this chief guy. And he's associated in a group of dudes who was doing that shit with her grandfather. With, yeah, he was an accomplice with the grandfather. Yeah, that's an right. accomplice. Like, what the fuck, man? So uh, she she had a had a baby at 13, like Granny said earlier on, and had to give it up for adoption. She was put into, like, a, a mother and child home for the last uh, month or so. So basically put in prison for 
being a victim of sexual abuse uh, in her mind. Yeah, and the um, child like whisked from her arms, you she know. She never even got to see the baby, mm. given in a closed adoption to uh, to another family, and nobody knows who that kid is now. Like, there's no yeah, way to yeah, find yeah. out. Some things I was reading online is like, we better fucking find it out, because th- those genes are fucking dangerous to let out loose. Like, what happens if he becomes a serial killer at some point? And you're like, that's fucking bad, man. Yeah. And the brother and her, I think, ran away several times. And what would happen when they ran away too many times, they'd be put into some kind of juvenile detention centre for a little while, oh, right, and then yeah. they'd turn back up again at the grandparents' house, like they'd be brought back. So they did try to get away together different times, but yeah. it just... Yeah, it didn't work out. They were, that's why she didn't want to go too far from the house. She was staying in that place at the end of the street. So like if they got too shirty, she'd be yeah, able to show yeah, up pretty yeah. quickly yeah. rather than just like disappearing off into the country. Yeah, yeah. But having the baby and um, causing all of that trouble as well as what you were saying earlier on, like having angry outbursts, uh, it was too much then for, for Granda. And he was just like, no, get the fuck out of here. And he booted her out of the house. So she was out on her own and uh, she was she permanently relocated to this shack in the woods and she was joined by loads of other people and they built it up into some kind of weird like never never land kind of lost boys village there was even in the Nick Broomfield uh, documentary there was the one one of the guys who was a he was a, 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 a transvestite and he was living there because his family kicked him out because he was he was gay and he wanted he liked to dress like a woman and he's very effeminate and he said my family kicked me out so I went to live with Eileen in the woods and he had a picture of the little hut they had and it was all very, you know, Mm-mm. Lord of the Flies and shit like yeah. that. You know, some pa- That's actually exactly what I thought about when I thought about them all being down at the pits. All these children just kind of milling around together trying to find their way and they're like, mm. and especially if she wasn't getting guided from, from at home or anybody really, you know, of course, you know, children will do whatever they want to do or whatever they're being coerced to do by the older children and certainly that kind of Lord of the Flies kind of vibe to it. Yeah, but they're obviously like coming from places that are not that hospitable. Mm. So presumably been like touched or fiddled or, yeah, you know, f- like fingered or fucked or whatever the shit was going on in their household to make them leave. And uh, that kind of abuse or sexual contact was normalised. So they were all like, well, I mean, somebody done to me, so it's probably a thing you do. Here, Eileen. Whip out your box there till we all have a look. Yeah. Because it's what, like, you know, Auntie Pauline did to him or whatever. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So Uncle Jack had a had a go. Mm-mm. So, like, this kind of sexual abuse and drug use, and it was facilitated by some predatory adults as well. Yeah. Sprinkling their stuff in. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, real fucking toxic place to be. Like, people are like, yeah, man, the fucking 60s. It's like, nah, son. There was fucking, <laughs> you know, like, encampments of... Uh, w- wayward vagrant youth yeah. but like sexually again, abused if you think about like, about each other how like um, homogenous Ireland was in terms of its values yeah. like even if you didn't come from a family like even if you were being if I if um, Eileen Warnes lived in Ireland right and that had have happened to her here in Ireland she would have been so constricted by the the national values that were being kind of you know coming down from the Catholic Church that she would have Probably stayed in the unwed mother's home anyway. She would have been sent to and the Magdalene Laundry. She would have been man. sent to a Magdalene Laundry. 100%. And she would have had to conform. There's yeah. no way she would have been allowed to conform live outside. Or kill yourself. Whereas America obviously was more disparate in yeah. terms of its values. And I mean, if you take the Michigan versus somewhere in the middle of Alabama, you know, the outlook in terms of community and everything would have been slightly different. Hence why she wanted to go to Florida. She wanted to be in Daytona Avenue where it was a little bit more kind of laid back, where there was sunshine. I'm guessing after years spent living in the woods, she wanted Freezing, to, yeah. you know. 
but it's frostbite. It's, like and that's a, that's the kind of journey for a lot of people, you know. Mm. Um, they come from like, you know, country. And then they go to they go to like New York City or they go to LA because that's the place they're the places that get yeah. that are welcoming. Do you know? Yeah, they're tolerant mm-hmm. of these different lifestyles, yeah, and if yeah. you find yourself or you could reinvent yourself, mm-hmm. leave your abuses behind. But it seemed like wherever Eileen went, she was bringing a everywhere you go, there you are. Yeah, that's what it a, is. A burlap yeah. sack of shit behind her. Well, she began living a vagabond existence and sleeping rough down through these harsh Michigan winters. It's not fun, man. Uh, she even claims that her hands and feet were permanently scarred with frostbite uh, from those days and the soles of her feet were permanently blue. She shows uh, Nick Broomfield her hands and they're all like fucked up on the palms and shit. I'm sure it's from a lot of like friction from like, you know, Sandy <laughs> Dick wanks or whatever she was giving in the backs of cars. Oh, God. You know, like these lads coming straight from the mines and they have a load of silt or whatever and they'll just tear the hands off you. But uh, she was already hooking before she became pregnant, in her own words. That's what she said. I was already hooking. And then we're talking about like 11 and 12. Mm. But like she, she didn't professionally, know. Uh, she didn't know yeah, what she was doing Yeah, but as an adult then. looking back, yeah. she's like, yeah, that's what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Like, I knew I was going to get, I knew there was like a, a quid pro quo. There was a transactional nature to it. I knew but, I was getting something. You know, I'd say that is a lot more common than we than we are aware of. You know, I I certainly have come across. I haven't come across anybody. Hashtag me too. There's no come going across anybody. <laughs> Just so you know what. Not better. across me tonight. Anyway, but no, I certainly have, you know, in youth work, come across young girls who were behaving not unlike, you know, as in due to their entirely their own innocence, yeah, not yeah. realising that they were being preyed upon. Going to a house party, by, having a few drinks and then like end up having sex with someone who's like, that's Friday night. But being kind of egged on to yeah. do this because, but be, in a, totally being preyed on by guys who are two or three years older innocent in their own way I suppose yeah but but you know, socialised um, from older people or from TV or from the internet like but it's it a is 15 more year old grooming it is more a 13 year old yeah that's yeah. you know than we think I guess I, I would know. imagine so the mm. youth of today yeah like today it was, I know what was happening in my day I could name mm. you half a dozen people in my little towning yeah yeah from Wexford little small little yeah, borough of 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 yeah. a borough, and unfortunately, it is those vulnerable kids who get sucked into that. It's the weakest of the herd that gets abused. To you be know? honest, it's I think the the people that I have in my mind, they were also abused, mm-hmm. and then, as far as I know, went on to be abused. further abused. Yeah, 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 or to be to be abusers. Yeah, yeah depending yeah. on male or female. Yeah, like I can think of half a dozen in my head. Like right now, I'd never named them. And some of them are even dead since because of it, because yeah, of, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, uh, uh, suicide and stuff like yeah. that. So it's, it's, it's like, it, it is there, like the, dir- the dark, uh, mucky underbelly of what you yeah. would think is normal society. Like there's places that are poor in cities that people live in, all the people out there in podcast land. And uh, if your life is good, like good for you, but for some people it's not. And a lot yeah. of people... I mean, I guess it's a, there's a sociological explanation, a clinical study that's been done on yeah, it, but yeah. like some kind of like sociological object permanence. Like if you don't see it happening, you don't even feel or know that it exists. You can't even begin to start feeling the emotions that it would need to to deal with that. Yeah, yeah. And it is happening probably a lot more than... Definitely. I think so. It has to be, you know, like... Well, there, because anywhere there's vulnerable people, there are people who are willing to take advantage of that but even sexual assault for grown ass women in professional settings like how often was that going on and now only now like yeah yeah now like 70 years or 80 years after the suffragette movement fucking 60 years after the 60s and the, the first wave feminist mm. second wave feminist in the 90s is 40 years ago I know I know I like, know like 
they're only saying that shit now and going like, oh yeah, um, I was raped by my boss and he was told if I told anyone I'd lose my job in 2019 or 2018. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like that's... That was actually the whole context of that Vice. There's a really good Vice article. When I was kind of trying to look down the whole feminist yeah. angle of this, there's a really good Vice article that kind of talks about the whole Me Too movement and the kind of bringing back um, Eileen Warner's story in terms of that and what it means. But like yeah, if, we'll discuss that maybe a little we, bit later. We put it at the end, but just to say like, um, I, I read that article as well mm. and it, it's very much the stuff I was scoffing at at the start. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, when used as an example to crowbar in that, mm-hmm. that thought project, let's say, it does make sense. Yes. It's entirely unrealistic. Yeah, but I think it's, it's more, entirely no, like I, d- I, I think your argument, your argument is that like, you know, she shouldn't necessarily be like a focus of sympathy or empathy or anything like that because I think so. She could, she could be, but I think really the kind of a lot of the feminist argument about her is more kind of like, why is it different? Why is this such an interesting case? Because it's a woman, because she's a lesbian, because she was a prostitute, because she had this tragic backstory, because she rescinded all of her. We'll talk about it later, but mm. she rescinded all of her testimony. Is why she was like, I was a victim of rape. You're sending a victim of rape. To the to the chain to the debt to the gas chamber, yeah. fuck yous, and then like two years later she went, oh yeah, I made all that up because I'm a psychopath. Like, well, she didn't do it because she was a psychopath, though. You know that. She, she said that that's what it was because. And yeah, but went, she did oh, it yeah, because okay. she wanted, as she said in her own words, clemency, clemency or death. That's yeah. what I want, clemency or death, because she knew if she kind of kept going for appeal and appeal and appeal. The funny thing is, if she had have, if she hadn't pled guilty to the first one to the Mallory one, she might have. Um, she might have gotten off because they. She, sorry, she admitted to the other ones. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, we're, yeah, talking, we're getting we're way ahead. Yeah, but <laughs> it is so fucking interesting. Like. It is. No, yeah. it, it's it, it's. We'll talk about it when we talk about the mm. sociological aspects of it. When yeah. we go into that feminist aspect, but like, there were definitely crimes committed. A hundred percent. The motivations behind them are the questionable. Subje- yeah, the subjective mm. examination of them. Like you could say, ah, oh, Jesus, you know, poor Ed Kemper. His man was awful hard on him. But should he have cut off her head and, and fucked her neck hole? Probably not. <laughs> Do you know? That's what that's what he did as a punishment. <laughs> kept her fucking kept her body in a freezer and chopped up her tits oh into a smoothie and all. Mm. Like Booby smoothie. Boobies booby mommy booby smoothie. <laughs> like that's weird. Oh my god. But how do you justify that? It's like, yeah, when he had a real hard childhood. Like it's you know Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway. Um, she she was living this vagabond existence. She was said she was hooking before she got pregnant at thirteen. So you're talking about eleven, twelve, being a quote unquote hooker. Um, that was her opinion of herself as an adult looking back as a child. Obviously, as a child, not really. You know, you can't have an eleven year old hooker. Um, you know, where would she keep the money? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't have a handbag. I'm a, I'm a child. Um, so this obviously led then to an escalation into full-blown prostitution in her mid to late teens. And then she'd work ar- around the whole area of Michigan. Uh, she also began <laughs> a regrettable sexual relationship with her brother. I guess she's just looking for a bit of comfort Again, with somebody that she have, knows. But when they were that young, they genuinely may not have been anywhere. He was, four, she was she was eleven, right? He, he was four years older. So yeah. so like she's she's like thirteen, fourteen, mm. and he's like seventeen, eighteen. Yeah, still I, both yeah. still living at home. Mm. Like that's not right, man. You're eighteen. You're having sex with your fourteen year old sister. I thought, sorry, I thought it, the, I thought it was more like she was eleven and he was fourteen. Yeah, yeah. he was four years older than her. So even yeah. if she was eleven, he's still fifteen. Yeah, yeah. Fifteen year old has no business having sex with an eleven year old. 
Yeah, but if it's Lord of the Flies and they've never been socialised, look, I don't know. I suppose, you know, if Eileen is getting the clatter off the da at home, you could you could imagine that Keith is getting the same clatter. By the way, I'm not saying that this is a positive thing by any means. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to condone the these decide, actions. Grania. I'm just trying to understand, decide. okay? That's all we do. It's just a conversation. If Keith if 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 Eileen is getting the slaps, yeah. Keith is getting them too. Mm-hmm. If Eileen's forced to fucking pull daddy off before he has his shower for work in the morning, presumably Keith is getting the nighttime tuk-tuks yeah, as yeah, well, yeah, you know. Yeah. I'm going, in, I'm going in to read Keith the bedtime story. Yeah, and yeah, he's yeah. fucking slapped them cheeks. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, like, presumably he had all the same dark Yeah, very possibly. Yeah, very possibly. Oh, God. It just doesn't bear thinking about. How come he didn't turn into a serial killer, you know? Because he died of esophageal cancer. You know this. That's what it is. Surprise, <laughs> surprise. Spoiler alert. Spoiler McKeever, we call it. Uh, so, at 20 years of age, then, Lee or, or uh, Eileen... Wanted to escape Michigan and this forest complex that she lived in with all of these vagrant vagabonds. So she hitchhiked to Florida and get this, she married a 69-year-old man called Lewis Fell, who was a successful businessman. And they immediately moved in together, but Eileen's wicked ways started to crop up again and she started to uh, get into fights in local bars. And then she even came home and bet the shit I would have poor old Lewis with his own walking stick one night. I'm sorry, it's just, it's just so mental, him. isn't it? Like, I mean, you think about it, like, he was the president of the yacht club. Yes, like, he was like, like it, was, it was announced in the paper, you know, uh, Mr. Fell has been <laughs> married to a uh, Michigan vagrant. And she's all with her, with her, like, trying to smile without showing her teeth on the paper like this. And, oh. and her hair was done all lovely, you know. Like, like, it's, like, it's like a fairy tale story. It's like, she, it's like here ba- is her chance. She to got shine. her sugar daddy. She got mm-hmm. him. She had to just wait a few years. He'd die and leave her all the stuff. She couldn't even hold it in, man. She went out, a few beers, poked a few lads around the pub, um, <laughs> and then came home. And he was like, uh, Darling, you can't be out drinking all the time. The people at the yacht club are talking. And she's like, Shoot up, you fump. <laughs> And bet the head off him with his own walking oh, stick. But like that has got to be proof of the fact that she really didn't have control over her emotions, yeah. right? It wasn't like she was just like, fuck it. I'm just gonna yeah. do whatever the fuck I want here. She's really she, trying. She, but yeah, just... she was. She was trying and I mean of course she was. She's she'd come unstable. from living in a shack in the woods or yeah, yeah, yeah. people's cars to hanging out with the president of the yacht club and now like but they, uh, it, like to Michigan be fair, to Florida is not a short distance. Mm. Like you're not you're not just getting there by sticking your thumb out, if you know what I'm saying. Yes. Like blowjobs, I'm talking about blowjobs. She had to suck dicks all the way to Florida. Yeah, yeah. So like by the time she got there, her lips were very chapped. Yeah. But she was also like in need of a bit of comfort. Mm. She fell into this lad's lap and he was like, Yeah, I'll mind you. Like all she had to do was fucking keep the head down. Okay, okay. Not that in that way. <laughs> She's like, What age are you? Sixty nine, that's my favourite. Let's get married. No. It's like she fucking she like that's that's every, you know, Daytona Beach slut But it, dream. again, it's in terms like, of oh, sociology, the yacht club um, you know, like we think that if we've had a really, really difficult childhood or we've grown up in a very, very chaotic kind of an environment, that what we're going to want as adults is some kind of semblance of normality and peace. And we're going to like settle down and have a nice quiet. So. We think that that's going to be the case. But the reality is that we recreate the chaos. And if you think about any kind of like... People who lead chaotic lives in general and like even in prison, like there tends to be a profile of people who end up in prison yeah. who come from very chaotic backgrounds. And as I've just said, they, they recreate these chaotic 
kind of futures for themselves. And recidivism rates you know, and all this stuff. Like people who go to know? prison often end up back in prison. So it becomes this cycle. Mm. But it's very, very difficult to break that cycle to just kind of say, you know, okay, I've, I've lived this chaotic lifestyle, living in the woods, not understanding basic human values of like whether sex is acceptable or not or it's a mm. transgression or whatever. Um, and then going into, okay, I'm going to settle down into a little quiet married life with my 50-year-older-than-me husband. You know, you just, that's, it's very difficult. It's, it's very rare that somebody would be able to make that assimilation from, you know, chaos, chaos to peace. To peace. But she, she, she also probably had, like, mad PTSD and mad, like, totally, yeah. you know, expecting everything to fall apart at any time, being exactly. super anxious all the Paranoid, time. Paranoid, central. Yeah. And then pouring drugs and alcohol in on top of that. And also, And then having, like, Lewis Fell's fucking crusty wingler mm, fucking oh, dipping into her every afternoon. But I think like, another thing is people who have been consistently rejected and devalidated consistently their whole lives, when somebody genuinely does accept them, they're testing them. There's a, this consistent test. Well, will you still like me and accept me if I do this? Yeah. Will you still like me and accept me if I do that? Will you still like me and accept me if I bat you over the head with your cane? Okay, that's the point where... Because humans need yeah. boundaries. Yeah. So there is kind of that as well. So What is it with humans needing boundaries? What is that? I don't know. I don't know. Feudal. It's feudal, isn't it? You think it's some primal thing? Maybe. I don't know. But um, yeah. Like, so why do humans work better when they're given like a set of parameters to work within? Where they're like, <laughs> like some people are like, "Fuck boundaries, let's do what we want, avant garde." I'm gonna paint with a Mickey or whatever. <laughs> and there's other people that are like, "Oh yeah, just tell me when to start, tell me when yeah, to I stop." I mean, like, look at COVID. The amount of people who've been out of work and having to work from home or whatever, and the procrastination and the yeah. lack of discipline and the lack of routine is killing people. Uh, like. Apparently, I read a study. That was that came out in June, and it said that there was loads of people who were actually more productive. Like the amount of productivity for the majority of people who were at home uh, was massively boosted. Why? That that the the people who would do well in an office environment did very poorly at home. Yes, but there was a predominance of. Uh, underperformers in the office environment who are actually soaring now who were, who when they're at home it's actually more per- so like say 40% of people did well in the office and 60 people kind of dragged their feet that 60% of people mm-hmm. are actually doing better than the 40% at home who are doing shit so they were thinking about like let's split the office and have the office people go into the office and do good work and then the people who work better from home just let them stay at home. Yeah. Which is going to be a whole new paradigm in the next, like, 24 yeah. months. Maybe there'll be, like, some kind of psychological test like like yeah. Eileen had to do where they'll test whether you're, like, good on your own or better in a group or yeah. whatever, like... Complete this task. Now, complete this task in a dressing gown. That's kind of thing. Take off your pants <laughs> and see how it does it. Hashtag me too. Yeah, it's it's fucked up, though. Um, at this time, she's in, uh, she's in Florida. She's married to the uh, head of the yacht club. And she gets the news that her brother died from esophageal cancer. Mm-hmm. Lord of mercy on Keith. Uh, so she collected on his life insurance policy and she paid off some of her fines for the petty crimes that she had got into on the way to Florida. Uh, and she bought a car which she wrecked not long after she bought it, which was a shame. And then she p- purchased a power washing business for a lover after uh, the nine week marriage uh, to uh, Lewis Fell was annulled. She only lasted <laughs> nine weeks. Uh, and she I wonder, did he have a prenup anyway? He probably did. I would imagine if he'd be silly <laughs> if he didn't. Um, so yeah, she took this 10 grand payout from her her, her brother Diane. And blew and, it. And she blew it all on a car that she crashed and a business for some fucking dickhead who was like, you know, here, come here, uh, I love you or whatever. Can you give me a few grand? I want to buy this. Bit. And she bought it and were, that was going to be their, 
nest egg and we're going to build up this business. And she was trying to get a normal mm. life going and he fucked her over. And it wasn't like, she she has a real um, bad luck streak of the people who she decides to trust and confide in and, mm. you know, accept their their love and give them love. Mm. And then it ends up like invariably becoming some kind of weird. Backfire, yeah. Yeah, fucked up situation. Like, I mean, Lewis felt, I don't know what he was doing with her or to her. Maybe he was the nicest land in the world. Mm. But his liver spots just put her off and she was just like, eh, what can I do? I started testing the fences. Fucked it up for herself. She never really kind of complained about him though, did she? No, really talk too much that's about the thing. Anyway. So like maybe he was a really nice guy. She's just like, no, this is not chaotic enough. Mm. And then the fucking, you know, some dude from the bar wearing one of those, uh, wearing a denim jacket with the sleeves cut off with no shirt underneath, you know, that kind of real sexy yeah. look. Hot. You're talking about uh, Baywatch Nights, you know, Mitch. <laughs> <laughs> Mitch and Baywatch Nights. It's like, it's not... It's uh, it's still Malibu, but uh, sexier. It's not. Uh, it's it's cold <laughs> enough to wear a jacket, but just with no sleeves. You know this kind of. A, um. So maybe he met one of those guys at the bar, and he was like, "Yeah, I'm thinking about getting into power washing." And he puts on the the sunglasses, and you hear the who going, "Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to clean up this town." Yeah, or whatever. And uh, yeah, she gave him a ball of money, and he fucked off on her, and she was bitter about it. She, that was one of the things that she griped about, like, the most. She was like, that was the last honest investment in my future that I ever gave. They even give a line to it in the movie when she meets the Christina Ritchie character, Shel- Shelby, because um, Tyria Moore uh, is very litigious and very protective of her image, so yeah. she didn't want to be portrayed in the film. So they made up a character for Christina Ricci. And you see when she comes into the bar, it's like, gotta get out of the rain. My, my my truck is outside in the rain and I just got caught the truck for a power washing business. And your mom's like, do you really have a power washing business? She's like, nope. I lost it a couple of weeks ago. So like all yeah. of this stuff, you know, yeah. super gripe. Mm. And like the last chance for Eileen Warnos to get a real life. And it was taken on her by a user. And it's not the last user that she'll encounter. At 18, she was arrested for DUI. Uh, various bar fights and altercations. She was also arrested after the marriage annulment for robbing a grocery store and she spent a month in jail. That was she, like a packet of cigarettes she stole as well. It was pa- like thirty-five dollars <laughs> in a packet of cigarettes. This is like some Charlie Manson like, shit. Did you listen to our Charlie Manson episode back no. in the day? Charlie Manson used to do this shit. Like, got caught for petty crimes. He come out of jail and he's like, "Gotta go back to jail, man." He was institutionalized in prison. He was in prison mm. from like fifteen. He didn't know what it was like to be outside, mm. and he just kept getting caught, getting caught, getting caught. His mother sold him for a pitcher of beer when he was only a few months old. Oh. Like as in gave him away completely. As gave him away. Someone went, I'll, I'll take your kid off you. How much do you want from him? Buy me a picture of beer. She was like this barefoot, like, uh, you know, mountain woman from Virginia or whatever. Jesus like some Christ. kind of wild woman. And she, she gave Charlie up. Like fucked up life. But this is the same shit. Just petty crimes. Doing bullshit. Making mistakes. Doing bullshit. Like. Yeah. And getting caught for it. She was. Um, but you have to understand as well. Like. When you are so fucked over consistently, so, like, consistently, you know for sure you are going to get fucked over. You start to lose the scope of whether you give a fuck. Yeah. Like, you know, I just You're right or wrong, doesn't matter anymore. It's just, like, the, like the whole world is a fucking mess. Yeah. When you're just experiencing shit after shit after shit, you're like, you know, what does that fucking matter anymore? Do you know what? This, I want to have a cigarette. 
There's a packet of cigarettes sitting right behind that counter. I'm not going to rub the whole lot. I just, I'm just going to do what I want. I only need right now, dollars. I want. Yeah. I want to have that packet of cigarettes and thirty five dollars, and that'll Can you do me. Imagine if the whole you know? world was like that. Though. Like how cha- how chaotic would that be? Yeah, but her world was like that. Her world yeah. was entirely like that. So she, of course she made a parade. She was like, "Fuck it." She just she just didn't give a fuck at that point, and anybody wouldn't have given a fuck at that point. I'm going to throw it out to you now, Granny, to say, is that not a prevailing attitude towards? modern society that a lot of people have just adopted where they're just like you know what I feel I'm disenfranchised enough to demand whatever the fuck I want from life and if I don't get it I'm going to cause a fuss well no I think most people are bound by the fact that they know that they will get into shit and they don't want they, they don't want to people, get into shit there's a lot of people out there making decisions doing stuff like setting fire to shit throwing bricks through windows fucking stealing shit doing stuff that should be getting them arrested but they're not getting arrested for it. They're kind of being allowed to do it. And then it's kind of empowering and emboldening people to do it more and more. Well, I know. Are you talking about in Ireland when they had that whole thing where like 30,000 juvenile offences were not registered or something? Are you talking about that? or That could be it. Or maybe like a bunch of people going in protesting on the quay about like wearing masks and having lockdown. Or what about like Antifa, like smashing up Portland and Kenosha and Chicago. And what about, you know, people going around setting fires in Australia and in L.A.? Uh, people just doing whatever the fuck they want and then like millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of damage are being I done. I think, no, I think like this is very, it's very specific like, to somebody who is ex- who has genuinely, those sound like people who are just assholes that you're describing who are just like, you know what, fuck it, they've decided. I, I, I'm guessing, I'm going to, I'm going to punt on the fact that I'm probably going to get away with this because of whatever reason they've, they've weighed out in their head. Right. Whereas for Eileen, she just simply, this is her reality. It was her reality that the world is a fucked up place. She has experienced nothing but one fucked up thing after another. Mm. And now she's like, do you know what? I just want to have a cigarette and $35. And that's what I'm going to do because I do not give a fuck anymore. That's what, and I, I think it was just simply a case of giving up on any kind of... of um, order in the world. There was no order in her life. So why should she conform to an order that didn't apply to her at all? Yeah, I can but see how that would be. That, yeah. Whereas the people like you're if the police, discussing if the police don't follow the laws that they make themselves and they're shooting people without trial or jury, then law doesn't matter. So let's all be lawless and exactly. people just break but out. You have to understand, like she was, you know, in the movie as well. Like, and obviously she discusses herself. Like the cops let her down. Like there's this one kind of part in in the movie where she tries to go and seek protection from the cops and she gets raped by the police officers. Mm. Another time in the movie where she goes to some kind of like community outreach place or some kind of women's health place or something and kind of says, look, I've been working as a hooker and I'd like to get off the streets and what kind of services are there available? There were, she puts your woman behind the desk, puts this like thing over the tannoy and is like, we got a hooker over here. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. like, like every time that this woman tried to do something right or get on track or be generous or trust in somebody or do like literally every door this woman opened she got a punch in the face as soon yeah. as the, like so you ha- like of course what the fuck does it matter if I go to jail what, what does it matter if I'm uh, at least she's actually orchestrating that she's in control in some way if she says you know fuck it I want the cigarettes and I want that money just that small amount of it and I know a punch in the face is what I'm going to get at the end of it I'm going to end up in jail or whatever somebody may rape me on the way to jail when they put me in the back of the squad car or whatever but she's somehow in control of it like she's the agent of chaos so yes, it's her chaos you know exactly if I'm going to live in chaos it's going to be my, my exactly rules. yeah yeah I get my that. circus my I monkeys yeah, I don't know, man. She she did a lot of these little petty crimes. She was also arrested for passing bad checks in 1984. She was charged with stealing a firearm in 1985. 
1986, she was arrested in Miami for car theft, resisting arrest and obstruction of justice. And then later on that year, she was arrested again for a holding up of a John, uh, you know, a a customer of Mm -hmm. prostitution at gunpoint for $200 in Daytona Beach. Like... That's a lot of little petty crimes she was, going on. Because she just didn't care didn't at that point. Yeah. yeah. And you know, it's kind of like if you're living on the edge of society, completely on the periphery of society, you have you have totally different understanding of what values of society are. If you've never been accepted into that, then why would you? Be, like, even like, you know, like the AIDS crisis in Africa, like a, a huge amount of countries in Africa or a large amount of countries in Africa are third world countries. You mm. know, I wonder why people aren't more careful about using protection when they're having sex or whatever else, you know, like, like, why do they not do more to try and individually stop the spread of AIDS? It's like, if you live in a third world country where the, like, estimated death of the average person is 20 years less than in this country, Mm. you know, your, your reality, like, the reality of a 20 year old man living in a township in South Africa is very, very different to the reality of, of you or I living here when we were in our 20s. You know, like, we have a lot to live for. We have a plan, a lar- large kind of plan, which is quite subconscious in our heads. For them and for people well, like... Well, we did. Well, and then, you know, then the got economy fucked. got fucked. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But like, somebody like Eileen Wernus, she's not expecting to live. She's not, she's living on the seat of her pants on the periphery of society. Not part, she's like a, the lost boys. She is living in her own little world now. It doesn't matter. She's expecting the worst. And, but now she's orchestrating it herself. It's funny that you say like the spread of AIDS in South Africa, that it's like an individual, um, an individual protection action or somebody who's like, you know, uh, if everyone just wore a condom, it would like reduce it so much. Mm. And that, that kind of mentality in a, I don't give a fuck society, like something that's on the peripheries of, of, Mm. you know, um, modern, modern culture or whatever, like they're, they're, in poverty, they're they're food poor. They're also like healthcare poor. They're support poor, education poor. Like there's so much. Yeah. Um, and that's actually that's another thing. Education. They can't even, if they you can't even get them. cunts in Texas to wear masks. Yeah, that's and that's true. an individual thing as well. They're just like wearing masks. So maybe the people in Africa are like, Nah, I don't want to wear a mask. Uh, I don't want to wear a condom. That is the government trying to uh, take away my happiness. Yeah, you know, possibly. Yeah, like he's like the fucking uh, uh, president of. I think the president or somebody, some kind of like uh, social leader at some mm. point said, uh, come here, you listen, you don't have to wear condoms. Uh, when After you have sex, just have a very hot shower and it takes away the uh, the AIDS. God. And there was a whole was thing, like, when I was in South Africa, there was a whole thing about how if you slept with a virgin, you and would get rid yeah, of it as well. So yeah. there was a lot of people raping Raped. children, yeah, you yeah. know, because they kind of thought that that would, oh, here. As giving children the fucking Well, yeah, sorry, just hep. go back to the whole education thing as well, like undereducated places where there's a major lack of education. But in, like, relation to Eileen Wernus as well, like, she had no education really to speak of. She dropped mm. out of school at the age of 14 after she had that yeah. kid or whatever. But, like, she really had nothing, like, like sex work was the only thing she knew in mm. terms of the only kind of qualification she has the only thing she knew that she was good at doing and she didn't even do it like in the proper way like in the in the traditional sense the typical you know hooker way mm. where you'd be like you go to a place under a bridge where there's yeah. a little, you know she did her own way yeah she did her own way she had her boots and her leather jacket and her jeans on and just went from exit to exit <laughs> I watched uh, have you seen pictures of her young yeah she's chunky man well, oh no, when she got about 30, when she was really rough on the road, she got really chunky. Yeah, when she was like 27 yeah, yeah. or 28. When she was getting caught. She was like, she was like. The mug shots were rough. Like, rough, man. She looked like uh, Vicky Pollard or something like that. Like yeah. big neck. Yeah. Big head. Like big fucking, uh, what's your one's name? 
Deirdre Rashid glasses, like these big, like <laughs> three inch lens glasses, you know, um, like Peggy from uh, King of the Hill or something like that. And uh, I mean, like a hole's the goal or whatever, but like if you're driving along and you could be like, hey, baby, what's the, hey, papi, want to have a good time? You know, something <laughs> like somebody like that's in a, a, you know, one of these fabled attractive prostitutes. Like she was like at truck stops going like, hey, can I have a lift? And then doing the hustle while in the car going, I got some kids and I need some money. Can you help me out? Maybe I can help you out. Maybe I can, you know. Mm. It was a very and that was again that was another kind of part of the the people like the prosecution were saying that a lot of the she lured a lot of these men into thinking that so she wasn't actually presenting herself as a prostitute. She was presenting herself as a damsel in distress, kind of somebody who needed their help. And once she got into the car, then she plied her trade. But I mean, like you're not going to meet a stranger, give her a lift, and then go, "Oh yeah, would you suck my dick for money?" Jeez, I never even thought. That's a great (laughs) idea. Like, no dude who hasn't got that intention already is going to go like, what? You mean, for thir- a mere $30? <laughs> I have that on me, right? Well, it just so happens. It's weird. It's a weird oh. way to set up. So she was uh, like a truck stop hooker, like a yeah. highway hooker, uh, thumbing lifts, people were picking her up, and then they were going for a drive. She was getting into bad situations in that, like she was. Uh, and again, we just hear like, okay, highway hooker, but like, I mean, the, I mean, it was the worst way to be a prostitute because it's like the most dangerous. At least if you're in a brothel or you're in something that's managed, or if you have a mm. pimp, you have someone to back you up. There's like a, a, a there's like a, place. yeah, there's like a um, structure. What would you call it? like a, a social contract? You know, where you know that you're picking somebody up and they're a hooker and blah blah blah. Mm. So you imagine like some bird is trying to like hustle you in the car and go like, yeah, well, go on in. Uh, like in the movie I had a bit where there was a guy and he was like go on and like 30 for like straight fuck and he's like go on give it a little suck first she's like that's not part of the deal and he's like bop and hits her a punch like these kind of things <sighs> there's rules around it like in a strip yeah. club it's like no touching there's rules around it for a reason yeah. and like sex workers need to be safe or whatever if you are going to go and do something like that she was fucking riding the rails, man. This is like really yeah, the, and like, the most dangerous we hear, way to do it. We've like. heard like different stories of, you know, like little snippets of it. But mm. the reality, I mean, this would have been like weekly or daily or whatever. Like, daily. But not even just the physical abuse or whatever, or the sexual abuse that would have had. But like the... Stressful danger. Yeah, yeah. The, the Just the verbal abuse she yeah. would have gotten, the, the disrespect she yeah. would have gotten. It would have been consistent. It would have been absolutely consistent. I'm imagining, like this is me. I mean... It's bit ba- you know you price your own you price your own future like or whatever right so if you say to somebody like uh, yeah that'll be you know if you're doing design work or something it's like yeah that's like two hundred fifty dollars what two hundred fifty just for that it's like well it's gonna be like five hours work that's fifty dollars an hour mm. oh, I can get it done cheaper somewhere else it's like yeah but like it won't be as good as mine mm. so you can have a cheap and good or you can have a good or fast or you can have a fast and cheap but you can't have all three you know mm. and if she's they're saying like oh yeah well how much would it be for to make the white stuff come out and she's like $30 and they're like just $30 oh this is probably going to be shit you know like anchoring mm. a price or whatever Yeah. so like she lowered her, she lowered herself down to like a pretty low price yes, so yeah. probably they felt like they could just knock her around plus there's no pimp hanging yes, around to defend yes, her yes. or just not in an establishment where like two fucking Chechnyan rebels mm. show up at the door and be like okay time to go Mm-mm. she said no hands mister mm. and then pull you out by your fucking hair like <laughs> It's happened to all of us, Grania. <laughs> We've all been there. Two Chechen um, rebels. Yeah, two Chechen rebels who were just like, well, the water's over and uh, I need a job. All I know is pulling men by hair. <laughs> so yeah, like it's it's a fucking, 
the, the most dangerous way to do it. Mm. Probably got her into a lot of situations that, again, furthered this cycle of abuse and yeah, low yeah. self-esteem, self-hatred, internal... But also, um, like, hammered home this negative attitude towards men. You know, yeah. like, she did... All men are shit and whatever. Yeah, well, she, she didn't say that, that she felt that all men were shit, but she did kind of say, no, but when I think about it, my lawyers are men, the judges men, are men, the cops Police are men, are everyone, you know, who had really screwed her over, or she felt at some point or another, had been men. Hashtag so, patriarchy. yeah, she was seeing the worst of men, I suppose, yeah. on a day-to-day basis. And Would you fucking wonder why Vice.com latched onto it and went like, oh yeah, let's make her a feminist icon because men mm-hmm. fucked her over. You're like, she killed seven people. Mm. Wind your fucking head back in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mom, let's 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 choose our feminist icons a little bit more carefully, shall we? Um so around nineteen eighty six, uh Eileen met this Tyra or Tyria. We're gonna call her Tyra. Yeah, let's go with Tyra. Tyra. Tyra Moore, um, who was very protective of her public image, which is why she was played by a, a totally separate character with a totally different name. Uh, who was eminently more attractive uh, than the real Tyra. Um, they didn't have uh, Robert Redford in a wig to play her in real life. <laughs> hey, Aileen, what's going on? Like, she, she, she's, she's rough. She's pretty fucking rough. Um, yeah, so, like, apparently uh, Eileen and her got into uh, a very loving, trusting sexually reciprocal considerate relationship would that be your yeah that's the way it seems what they to be in? yeah yeah they kind of had a whirlwind kind of a lock themselves in the bedroom for the weekend yeah. didn't leave and then just kind of went from there but they moved Flat in festival yeah they kind of moved from place to place they were living in tents in the wood they were living in mobile homes they were living in motels they moved around from place to place a lot but like a mobile was, scissor factory yeah but they were um like it was Eileen, it was kind of the, the, the breadwinner of the family. Mm. So she was going out and prostituting to earn money to provide for Tyra, mm. I suppose. And Tyra was maybe doing like little bits of cleaning and stuff. But uh, when Cleaning things... up after all of the crazy sex they were having. <laughs> yeah. Mop, mop of the walls. No. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I don't know it how just lesbians do it. I don't know. It seemed to be a weirdly kind of role, kind of specific kind of relationship. Yeah, a gender normative yeah, gay relationship. Yeah. Kind of so yeah, but a lot of the pressure kind of fell and, and I guess probably um Eileen revealed her vulnerability and her lack of self respect early on in the relationship and where maybe Tyria or Tyra kind of wanted to mind her at the beginning, then kind of actually started using her kind I of think as so. the relationship developed. I was going to say, I just wanted to find out how you felt. I think as it went along, yeah. Tyra start, started going like, geez, this bitch, she'd suck the fucking chrome off a ball hitch yeah. and she's making £400 a day mm. out sucking dicks in car parks. Yeah. I, I, I could live like this. Yeah. Let's so, live like this. In the movie, it's dramatised as, uh, you know, Shelby, She's from a very Christian family and they don't want her to know she's gay and she has a little nest egg. And then like it was seen like that Eileen has taken advantage of her, taking all her money and mm. making her pay for the motel and all the shit. And then it very much became uh, Eileen had, was forced to go out and earn the money. Yeah, yeah. And Eileen kind of was backing away from the prostitution yes, work at that to. time. But when... Things got pressurised in the relationship due to a lack of funds. Eileen was then going out Back on the and rod. Um, yeah, exactly. So, but yeah. it came to a point where Tyria was she was knowing that Eileen was out hooking. Yeah, and in her court depositions and when she became uh, a witness, started denying that kind of stuff. Like that seemed to me to be very um, 
very underhanded and very. She was a very underhanded person I in think many so. ways. And I think well, that's why she doesn't like being being portrayed mm-hmm. in documentaries or being portrayed mm-hmm. in movies or whatever. She claimed that she was kind of living in fear of Eileen. Uh, that yeah, you know Eileen might have you know killed her, or hurt her in some way or other. No, yeah, a very kind of a devious character, I suppose. I feel so. It's my personal opinion that she is. Is it your personal opinion that she is? Well, it ju- say just, yes because it's legally prevented from. Really? Yeah. Well, I would say she definitely presents like uh, in the documentaries that in I saw. In your personal opinion, yes. In my oh, in my personal opinion, yeah. I would say she definitely appeared to be devious yes, in her nature. That, uh, and yeah. in my personal opinion, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that was the way she seemed to present herself and the way that she came across in all of the and everything that I watched. Yeah. Except the start of the movie portrayed her as like a kind of a a lost, in-the-closet, gay, kind of waif-like, please take care of me, please mind me. Mm. In real life, she was pretty well put together. She knew exactly what she was doing, and she found somebody who I think was throwing up all sorts of fucking uh, signals for people to go like, take advantage of me, have me buy a power washing fucking business for you, and and then you can fuck off with the money. Like... Mm. But having said that, having said that, like if you're in a relationship and somebody comes back and you know that they have murdered somebody or you can see that they've now got a new car that they didn't have when they left earlier on that day and something has definitely gone down, you know, and she knows her to be violent and into bar fights and whatever else. It's convenient, convenient situation. It is convenient in one sense, but also you would, like, I would be frightened. I would, like, like if you get all that, if I came home with a fucking bag of cash, Claire would be all like, where the fuck did you get that from? Where did, what's the fucking... Yeah, but also if you were a very, very violent person in general, kind of like, you know, starting, like, one of the things Tyra said that, happen would like it would be very very embarrassing that she would like it like you never knew when she was going to kick off in public basically you know yeah that's, the, that that's the borderline personality stuff as well though like that's the same shit that she was doing mm. for her whole life got her kicked out of her grandparents so house. I do to some extent buy the fact that she says she was you know um scared of leaving but um at the same time why the fuck did you stay as long as you did then? If you were obviously gaining... There, it just, there was too, too many benefits well, for so you to... What Eileen said was that she was coming home with wads of cash and handing it over to Tyra. And then Tyra was going out drinking. She was going over to the gay bar. She was hanging out with other people. Mm. Presumably, you know, doing sexy things with them as well. Mm. Um, I'm only presuming. Mm. But like that was kind of the intimation from Eileen's uh, sour tone. In my opinion that that's mm. kind of what she was alluding to but she couldn't for sure say herself but she suspected her of it going out living the life spending all the money that uh, Eileen was getting like literally fucked for mm-hmm. in random cars all over the state of Florida bringing home the money and then your mom was going out and you know buying stuff and yeah having a party with it like that's I mean it's not exactly fucking you know I'm oh I'm slaving at a, at a hot accountant's desk and it's like oh I'm after doing 60 hours in the in the, in the the architect's office this this week. Oh, and then you come home and your wife is after buying like three things off the internet from fucking Next or from, you know, something <laughs> like, oh yeah, I just ordered these things, just a couple of little things. Hope you don't mind. You're like, yeah, 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 whatever. But like, if yeah. you come home and she's after fucking buying like a quarter ounce of Coke and she's like, passed, <laughs> you passed out. And, like, there's cocaine everywhere and you're all like, what yeah. the fuck? And nine strangers in your house. You're like, don't know about this now. Why am I working this hard? 
But like then again, when you look at like the positives of, of Eileen, the fact that she was so giving, you know, like was so willing to do what, give everything that she had to ensure that this person that she adored, like right up until the end, pretty much, she yeah. she loved Tyra more. When, when she, despite the fact that she knew that she had screwed her over completely, when she knew that she had lured her into giving this um, confession. And just, Very complicated you know, it yeah. just... But it, that shows that she like I didn't get the impression that she had ever laid a finger on Tyra. They had she she hadn't ever beaten Tyra. Or I don't. Like that. I, I didn't get anything from. No, it, no, I didn't get any of that. So lay the, the finger was, is probably the wrong term. <laughs> she laid several fingers. Yeah. in the right kind of way. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, you know, like I just kind of think um that there was obviously a decency within her, right? When I think I think when she Eileen did had a, had a had a at her. Like the kernel of, of, you know, mm. gold that was surrounded by coal and shit and steel and iron and yeah, yeah, like yeah. compacted feces and all that <laughs> other stuff. Like at the very, very, very centre of her. She's like a hooker with a heart of gold, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. We're, we're getting off the fence now. We're getting into personal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do think, though, that there was something in her that wanted to have a normal life. And I think going for those job interviews in the movies, which didn't actually happen in real life, really. Mm. Um, she did go looking for help from government agencies and they, and they wouldn't help her. But it's just like... So many circumstantial shitty things happened to her that put her in a situation that made her destiny of being a killer almost like inevitable. Inevitable. Yeah. It was a matter of fucking time. So Granny, maybe you can tell us uh, something about uh, uh, America's first female serial killer. Some of her Yes, well look, bone of contention I suppose. Aileen's victim were mostly customers of her as a prostitute so the movie or the other documentaries and podcasts really want you to believe that she tricked them into driving onto country roads and then taking advantage. But in fairness um, later the testimony of herself would give you this impression. So um, the original tale of how she was attacked, she kind of um, retaliated. Sorry, I'm completely off track here. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> so yeah, Richard Charles Mallory picked her up on the side of the road and solicited her for sex. So he was her first victim really. She drove down a, a quiet country road and um, they began the act but things turned nasty quickly after that and um, Mallory began savagely attacking her according to her. So a violent rape ensued and she was tied up but she managed to get a hand free and reach for the pistol that she had in her bag. She shot him twice, killing him. And she actually shot him several times. It was just the two I, I, managed to lodge in his lungs. I found I, 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 mm. we said that before we started I only found that she shot him two times. Yeah, I because I was do, the reason we had that conversation mm. because we were talking about how she had exponentially kind of developed this kind of appetite for shooting. Mm. So it seemed that she had shot him two times, the next guy six times, the next guy nine times. And the, I looked back over it again, and what I did find was she had she he had been shot several times, but that it was the two to the lungs that the got coroner him. found the two yeah. in the lungs. Yeah, but I tried to find how many times he was shot, and yeah. all I could you find got was two. two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, we so like have the same investigative brain, but don't we? Not, like, I, I was like, how many? I wonder, did it escalate? Like, how many times? But yeah, two is all I could find. If you can send me something, people out there in podcast land, uh, if you can send me something that says yeah. it was more cool, but it's still, uh, she shot a motherfucker. Now, the scene in the movie is graphic mm. and grim. Yes. Lots of scenes in the movie are graphic and grim. But this particular one, uh, it, it would tighten your arsehole, <laughs> like with, with the grimness. Because you don't know what the fuck is happening. Mm. Very, very strange occurrences. Like a wheel brace yeah. up the, presumably in the vagina. We don't know if it was in the butt. A lot of beating. 
she described it in court in the Nick Broomfield documentary and it'll bring a tear to a glass eye. I won't repeat it, but you can go watch it for yourself to, to hear a woman giving that kind of testimony, which is rare because like usually when someone's reporting a rape or whatever, you'd hear like just like, oh yeah, this guy at this time and this night and blah, blah, blah. But you wouldn't hear the actual like deposition, the words of like, and then, and blah, you know, even with the Paddy Jackson stuff and all, like you heard the general story, like gangbang yeah, yeah, type yeah, yeah. situation, but you wouldn't hear like, uh, you know, the penis popped popped out and, and was forcibly entered into the end. You wouldn't hear yeah, yeah, like yeah. that kind of Level detail. of detail, yeah. A man, Ailey Warnos given that first attack. Mm. And Horrific. then he, he got, he got like, what was it, rubbing alcohol? Yes. And oh, he poured it Jesus. into her arse and into her vagina and then like lifted up her nose like a pig, like, you know, the way you do this mm. thing and like poured it into her nose to go down her throat and all. He's like, I want you clean before the end. Mm. He he said to her, like, that's fucked up. Mm. That was mad that he would do that. Yeah. But um, yeah, so she moved the body, cleaned the car and abandoned them two miles away and then took the car. She took the car, didn't she? Took it. Which became kind of like synonymous with a lot of her murders where she would rob not only the items from them, but often take their car as well. And that's kind of what caught her out then, I suppose. For a day end. or two, she'd take the car, drive it around a bit mm. and then ditch it and clean it. Now, she was pretty fastidious about the cleaning of the cars. She would like mm. give them an old wipe, a bit of bleach and a bit of how do you do, a bit of elbow grease. <laughs> But, um, so, so none of her, like her... DNA was not... DNA, found. there was only one case where DNA was found and it was a footprint on the uh, inside of the windscreen. Presumably mm. during a sexual act, she, she had to throw her leg up there for a bit of purchase and uh, she had to get a bit of grip. And uh, yeah, that was one part that she didn't think to clean or forgot yeah. to clean. And they were able to match her with that. So that was mm-hmm. one of the, I think Sears was the... Man's name for that for that murder when the car was found. But yeah, these cars are found and then the bodies are found like a mile, two miles. Sometimes they're found like right beside it. There was no set pattern. It seemed yeah. to be very erratic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There wasn't a plan, I don't think. But the fact that there was only these two bullets for the first murder anyway mm. would make you think potentially this could have been self-defense because Absolutely, so which so. was her her bid that this was what it was about it was self-defence um, so yeah subsequent deaths were more violent and grandiose so she as we were saying it Escalate. just did seem that she kind of became a little bit more comfortable with the old trigger there as she developed and that's typical serial killer shit I don't know how many true crime documentaries you listen to but it starts off with like you know animals working up to bigger animals working up to mm. your first victims and the first victims are you know uh, uh Sometimes circumstantial, sometimes very like a test, you know, mm. uh, somebody close to you and then it gets bigger and bigger and, bigger, and it goes bigger and bigger, bigger and then you get caught. So like this seems to follow that trajectory. Then. Yeah, that that regular serial killer trajectory. Mm. Absolutely. Regular serial killer. What a friggin yeah. oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just a normal everyday serial killer. OK, forget about regular serial killer. <laughs> Try new diet serial killer. It's the, so, same, yeah. it's the same great serial killer flavour with half the calories. Mm, yeah, so yeah, so just a kind of a list, I suppose, of the various different murders that progressed mm. from there. So, and it is important, you know, when you're discussing, like, somebody who's a murderer, I know she obviously takes the central spotlight because it was her trial and there was all this fucked up story around it. Yeah, it's her Would name on the episode. forget yeah. that there's all these men behind it, whatever they did or didn't do, they were fathers and they were brothers and they were sons and they were, you Pro- know. Prostitute, uh, prostitutes customers. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, Andrew Spears, sorry, David Andrew Spears, found naked, shot six times. Charles Edmund Car- uh, Car- Clarkston or Carkston? 
Karskadan. Karskadan. Shot nine times and wrapped in an electric blanket. He was only 40 years of age. Mm. Peter Abraham Seams, body never found, 65 years old. Troy Eugene Barres, 50, shot twice and body found on the side of the road. Um, Charles Richard Humphrey, 56, retired Air Force major. And um, yeah, he was the chief of police at one stage, wasn't he? He, he, he was the state child abuse investigator, the head, the chief state yeah, yeah. child abuse investigator. Not the chief of police. But he was like ahead over all of the yes, yeah, yeah, the missing to, yeah, kids yeah. in Florida. Yeah, yeah, which is out, so out visiting hookers when he's like fifty six. Yeah, but then it was there one particular family. I'm not. I can't remember which particular family who really, really went after. It may have been his family that really went after that whole. She lured men in with this damsel in distress, and yeah, he yeah. thought that he was helping somebody. His wife. And, uh, she's the one that has those. Uh, uh, those King of the Hill glasses oh, and all yeah. that same thing and she has like a little black bouffant and she's like I can't believe I can't believe my Charlie would do that I can't believe he'd do that like he's like come on bitch you don't look like you're you know yeah with his chinos and his fucking golf shirt I'm just saying she didn't look like a a very uh, what would you say sexually prolific woman yeah she wasn't exciting enough. She's a bit dry. She's a bit, you know, she's a bit, uh, bit close, a bit, a bit fin- close for business, mm. you know. Um, I maybe just wanted a bit of strange. Maybe he mm-hmm. wanted someone, someone to slap him around a bit yeah. because he was like in authority and he just wanted a bit of rough. Mm. And sometimes you want that and that's okay. But at the same time, you can't exactly be like a, 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 a pillar of the community, a, a high moral standing when yeah. you're having sex with like truck stop hookers. I know. For $30, like. Yeah, well, you just never know. You never know what what is going on when you when society has a specific set of values that are being yeah. set out. Um, like I don't like, know how I feel about prostitutes. Well, I don't know how I feel. That, that, that's I've what never, I was just about I've to say. Like we have this idea that yeah. prostitute, well, sex work, we'll call it sex work, is like they're, they're two. For me, prostitution and sex work are two very very separate things. There's a whole bunch of men and women who are involved in sex work who feel very very empowered by it. And then there's like there's um, Rachel. I've forgotten her name in Dublin. There's, so there's like Kate McGrew Mulgrew, who's very she's a member of the Sex Works Alliance um, of Dublin of Ireland. Mm-hmm. And then there's Rachel Morn, Rachel Morn, yeah. who was, as she would say, prostituted as a child. She was brought into prostitution and treated as a criminal, you know, and eventually obviously managed to come out of it, but is very much um, an advocate for women who have been prostituted, as she would say. So the two of these women kind Trafficked. of... Yep, yeah, the yeah. two of these women often get pitted against each other in primetime debates and stuff, when realistically, this is semantics. It's two very, very separate things. These are two, it seems on the surface, society wants to say these two things are the same things with the same values, but they're, they're two totally different things. One is women and men engaging in work that they feel empowered by, that they feel is rewarding, that they feel is important work that they're doing. And lucrative. That they, and lucrative and they, and they want to pay taxes and they want to be safe when they do it. The other group is a group of people who feel that they have been abused and targeted because of their vulnerability or whatever else, um, that they've been exploited. Um, and I guess sometimes society confuses the two. We, we, we're, 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 we're constantly, those two things are presented in the same way and they conflict each other. So, um, but it's, just, the, like, when you it's say, just like people who work in banking. They're like, yeah, some of them are the guys that are able to make a deal to be able to give a young family a home and other lads are the fucking people who destroy the economy because they were deciding to do like shady shit. Mm. Like you can take any business and you can like binarily oppose the, the good points and the bad points of it. Yeah. Like you can go into Amsterdam and go like, yeah, the women in the windows, 
uh, they're all paying taxes now. It's been legal since I think like 2010 yeah, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Whereas before it was just uh, which is what the Dutch call uh, like tolerated. So there's like an actual yeah. kind of culture of tolerance with yeah, weed, yeah. which is still not I mean, legal. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very grey area. Yeah, but there's still human trafficking going yeah. on in Amsterdam. There's still women who are off Absolutely. the books doing nixers. Absolutely. I mean, same like in Madrid. I watched a whole thing yeah. about in Spain. And there's a lot well, of grey area, you know. Yeah. But And then you get a lot of... Uh, or even there's, strippers. There's, a, there's strip clubs in Dublin where you go in and it's like 50 for a private dancer or whatever it is, yes, right? Yes, yeah. But like if you're willing to try out a hundred or a couple of hundred or you whatever... You might get more, yeah. Of course, of course the possibility of more is there. Yeah. Because it's yeah, it's yeah. like you're only a fucking half an inch away. But from then it. again, when you talk about socialization, there are women who have been trafficked from, say, Eastern Europe, and thinking that they were going to work as nannies or cleaners or whatever. And then they have when some of these women are found and brought back to their hometown or whatever, back to their families, mm. they find that a large proportion, well, some a proportion of these women end up going back to places like Amsterdam or um, Madrid or wherever to work for themselves as prostitutes because it, again they become socialized into that as a way of making money or you know it's very hard to break that kind of once that socialisation has happened when it's on the CV it's kind of hard to explain it to your next employer but also once that transgression has happened and in order to re-empower themselves to say well okay this bad thing happened to me but how do I now own it and say turn it into something that's I've decided I'm stating this is good and this is okay and I'm going to do it and I get to say no if I don't want the customer rather than ownership I'm choosing to do it as opposed to being trafficked into it but sorry when I go back to this guy um, Richard Charles Richard Richard Humphreys and you know saying like is it good bad or indifferent that like like because he was the chief police or the state investigator or whatever um, he He was the state child abuse investigator that's the maddest thing yeah so like what's abuse of a child like a prostitute can be 17 but child abuse is like 16 yeah but if it's consensual and he's not abusing somebody then you could say you could say sex works sex work is sex work right what are you listening for? Fireworks. Is there bangs going on? Yeah, there's fireworks in the background. All right, yeah. We're in Dublin, near Halloween, of I was, course. I was wondering what was going on there. I was yeah. like, is somebody getting shot outside? <laughs> Aileen Warnos is out. <laughs> just drop me off here at the corner. Bang, bang. Um, but, um, yeah, sorry, so, yeah, you so like, well, like, just the, the, when we bring it back to basics, is it moral or is it not? Is Was kind of like, wh- like where, yeah, you I know, like... I don't know like, how I feel about it. I haven't thought about it a whole lot. I've never engaged in any... Uh, it's just a social construct, side, really. Morals are just a but, social construct to decide is, that. I've never engaged like in the monetary exchange of like my money for somebody else's sex in a way that was like like overtly uh, transactional for yes. the sex itself. Yes. You know, like you 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 know, buy a few buy a few drinks for somebody or you're just like, Come on out, we'll bring you out for a meal. I have the chat and do all the stuff, and then you're like, I'll pay for the meal. And in some ways, like dudes very young dudes and it's only recently where you're starting to go like do you know this kind of what's that Sylvia Plath quote where you like a woman is not something that you pour kindness into and sex comes out do you know it's not a machine that you yeah you know, um, I'm not a sex machine you know yeah. <laughs> ha, get on up hey, I'm about to do my thing count it off um, it's, it's, a, it's a weird it's a weird thing in my mind and this is I haven't prepared this like this I'm just like fucking talking real talk like I've never paid for sex. I've seen and known of friends of mine who've done it. I've never even paid for uh, uh, like a stripper or anything like that. I've been in three strip clubs in my life. It was about five years or six years uh, between the, the most recent one and the one before and about 15 years to the one before that. And I was in it. And the last one I was in, I ended up talking to a Romanian woman who was a, a stripper. While my 
two compadres were off getting a dance and I was meeting them to go home. I wasn't drinking. I haven't drank in years. And uh, I ended up talking to this one at like 10 past four in the morning. She's like, I am off at five. I'm not bothered. Do you, you don't want to dance? It's like, no. She's like, what's crack with you? And I'm like, what's crack with you? And she's like, well, I come from Romania. I have two kids. My husband is at home. Um, you know, I'm I'm the, the breadwinner and, uh, you know, I get to work at nighttime. So it means I can be at home with the kids during the daytime. And I was like, oh, that's very, that's very convenient and functional. And she's like, yeah, like to put the kids to bed and then I go out to work. And uh, my husband works during the daytime. So I mind the kids and then he minds them at night when I'm out doing this. And I'm like, geez, that's very handy. Do you know, like this mm-hmm. kind of thing. So you're like, I couldn't get, I can't get my head around being able to like have a positive, because I guess it's because of like, uh, it's all a, cultural so, conditioning yeah, it's a, every time you see a prostitute you think like oh it's like a victim in, a, in some movie or there's like girls being held in a container like in the wire or something like that there's always seems to be like some kind of seedy element or just some kind of a legal thing behind it there's always been you know like a negative twist on somebody who has it's almost seen as like a last resort to be able to sell your body for money mm-hmm. because it's usually associated with like you know, drug abuse or drug intake or exploitation. Like, and to be honest, uh, speaking as a dude, like I've consumed, I consume porn. I don't know what's going on when, before, before they go like, okay, action. Like that girl looks like she's probably having a good time, but the porn is quite violent. You know, Mm. the modern porn is quite violent. Mm. Um, Just in the, like the thrustings and the the machinations of it. Like you don't know what's happening. (laughs) behind the scenes you don't know how that's being made or how much they're getting paid compared to other people or is it like a living wage or they're being exploited is it a trick did you watch um, Hot Girls Wanted Uh, the documentary yeah Uh, a long time ago yeah maybe I mean it's really in terms of socialising vulnerable young women into a life of of was this the one where the girls came to California and it was like a house where they all stop in? It was and Florida. And the guy would film them. It was Florida, yeah. So basically, Florida. they it, the, the, it was a Craigslist they were only, ad. They were, oh, yeah, they were only good for a few weeks and then yeah. they weren't new anymore. Exactly. I remember that. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. it was Rashida Jones made the documentary. Yeah. And so there was an ad on Craigslist, Hot Girls Wanted. So it kind of lured young, kind of vulnerable girls who, who thought they were getting into modeling. Wanted to be validated by this idea of we're beautiful or whatever and wanted to get into modeling. So everything was paid for flights, accommodation picked up the airport had to have a passport to prove that they were 18 as soon as they got off the flight they gave their passport to this guy who dropped them out to this house which was already populated with about seven or eight girls who Mm. were pissed up to their eyeballs having the best crack but they immediately socialised this newbie into this fantastic sorority kind of vibe Mm. of like oh we're like porn stars and I love the way it's if you you do porn you're a porn star immediately Immediately. like you were just a star I was doing comedy for five years I wasn't (laughs) a comedy star And apparently, yeah. uh, like, the only way to get ahead is to take out your dick. And I didn't even think about doing that. Yeah, there you go, now. Hello. But yeah, so, you know, it's like this immediate socialising. The, these girls were just so young and so naive that they got kind of got sucked in by the other girls. They were so clever the way this guy did this. So they they thought that they were, at that point, they just thought that they were... Just do it. You have a bottom bitch and she mm. recruits other younger girls and conditions mm. them into doing what they're doing. Yeah. And she gets an extra slice. Yeah. So anyway, like the Jeffrey Epstein case, the exact yeah. same kind of thing. But um, yeah. Yeah, it's just how quickly you can be socialised into thinking that sex work is a positive thing. And um, But is it a positive thing is what I'm saying? Like, should, there's obviously a market for it, but just because there's a market, it doesn't mean that the, that the I, I, that's what I'm saying. I don't know how I feel about it. It's part of a larger conversation. We won't continue on too much more on this show, but maybe during a live chat, like, I, you know, I just, 
there's something in me that just goes like, oh, that's not right. Mm. I wouldn't judge anybody. I wouldn't tell them to stop doing for, it. If you're for doing, being involved in sex work. Yeah, if you're mm. doing it, man, do it, man. And what happened when all the fucking people getting knocked off their job with corona, everyone went on, went on to OnlyFans and then they commodified their titties like or whatever mm. and they're just like, come here. If you, if you motherfuckers are willing to pay, I see these shits every day for free. Yeah. If you're willing to give me like, you know, a, a fiver a month, patreon.com slash those conspiracy guys. If you're willing to give me a fiver a month for whopping up my tits, cool. Maybe I, I some of the girls are not really thinking ahead and they're going like, them pictures of your tits are out there forever. So if yeah. you're like 38 and you're trying to get into like, you know, the, the VP position at whatever company you get into after you're finished college. And then somebody has a lot of pictures of your fucking gaping gash from like a thing from 20 years ago, which is in high def, by the way. And by that <laughs> stage, we'll probably in super hologram 3D VR or whatever. Mm. Like, uh, are you thinking ahead? Because it's like quick money now, which is the hot girls wanted kind of mentality. Mm. Like you want quick money now, boom, do it. Sasha Gray is a perfect example of that whole uh, um, paradigm where she was like at 19. Okay, what's the best way to earn money? I could do porn, I'm hot. And she says this herself. So she's like, okay, but if I just do normal porn, I only get paid this much. But if I do like blow bangs and like, you know, double, double anal and uh, double vagin, like four dicks made at the same time. What? Or if I do like crazy bukkake, BDSM, fucking hair pulling, like punches in the face and uh, like fake dicks full of giant, like liters of cum just drowning me. Like all this mad f- specific shit, like fetish stuff. If I do all that, I get paid way more. And she ended up in like three years, maybe four years, making millions of dollars. And then at like 23 or 24, bounced. I was like, boom, I'm out of porn. And her videos are still all over the internet. But she can't get a job in a local Tesco's. But, I mean, do you want a job in a local <laughs> Tesco's? She's sitting on millions of dollars. So she went off and went to college and got educated and started paying for all this stuff. She started trying to be a legitimate actor. She was in the girlfriend experience. She's all, you know, she was in Entourage. But, okay, that's interesting. Can you, can you go back into once you have transgressed beyond the the most the, the most extreme values or boundaries of society yeah. can you come back in is it if, possible to ever come back in if and this is where I'm talking about we talked about before we started the show about like the the cultural marxist agenda or like this new the new the overton window of acceptable social behavior mm. um, if that window has changed position if the window has changed to allow sex workers to be totally normalized then yeah, of course they can come back in. You you, you do porn when you're yeah. hot and sexy and when but you're 18 to takes, 25. It takes somebody like... And then at like 25, it. go and put on a pantsuit and be like a businesswoman and completely leave sex work behind. And if you change the Overton window to accept that to be the, the, the norm, mm-hmm. then it's opening up for everybody to do sex work. And some people might think like, hey man, that's not cool because you're like any 18-year-old who's having a hard time finding a job. It, it's going to be so easy to resort to doing porn and not everybody should be doing porn because it's an exploitative industry. Yeah, It's the same mentality, I think, in a bad way of people going like, oh, come on, if we start accepting all these gay lads, they'll just keep getting younger and younger and you're going to promote paedophilia. And I was associating like male homosexual sex with paedophilia, which is a, a, a like an incorrect assumption. Yes. It's a non-correlated aspect of that culture, but it's still associated in some way mm-hmm. that there's young men who have sex, like 14-year-old, 15-year-old dudes who are gay who will have sex with an older man and it's like on the fucking DL or whatever. That's not like paedophilia in their mind. Mm-hmm. But then you go like Milo Yiannopoulos went onto a TV show or onto a podcast, the the the, uh, the, drunk, uh, the drunken 
something, Drunken Peasants, he was on. And that was the fucking podcast that got him cancelled because he came out and he said, uh, yeah, I was 14 when I was in my first sexual relationship with an older man and I think it's totally fine that people do that. And people was like, Milo Yiannopoulos advocates paedophilia. For the, and it ruined him and he got kicked off of Twitter and all this whole big shit, right? So like, it's weird. It's a, it's a, it's a very... Um, like the boundaries of society personal, are, yeah. yeah. But like, a personal at, decision. I, got, like, I don't know where yeah, my... But we're looking at Ireland, right? And like how... It was illegal to be homosexual. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. In, in many, many, it was illegal many. to have anal sex, even in a consensual relationship or in a marriage. You weren't dick wasn't allowed. But like the, the majority of people subscribed to that belief, and yeah. and, and the same thing with repeal the eighth there not so long ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like and, and again, if you say to somebody abortion, killing an unborn child, is that good or bad? It's a visceral you can, binary you know, reaction. It's you can you can, like we can understand both, but mm-hmm. but it's taken a huge length of time for Ireland to come around to the fact that like whatever you believe whether abortion is right or wrong whatever it's not your fucking it's it's not your business what I do with my body yeah, essentially yeah, yeah. you know yeah, yeah. it's taken a long time for the, the majority of people to subscribe to that way of thinking I'll say it to you this way and you could associate it with how I it's not like I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. I'm just talking about this for the first time with yeah. you now. But but sorry, my go point is the, in relation to the prostitution. Yeah, yeah. How I, long does I, it let take me go on this one for, to, the to, for the that age, right? to go? Yeah. So like, I'm only talking about this for the first time. So maybe the things I'm saying aren't actually how I feel about it. I'm just trying to figure it out in my head. But I can understand that when you put it into something like the repeal the eighth conversation, mm-hmm. which is a, a, like an amendment to our constitution as a country where people are allowed to have abortions are not in our country what it was associated with and what the no campaign, which is the guys who want to keep abortion out of Ireland, what they were saying is this is going to have abortion be used as a contraceptive. So people are going to take less care when having sex. Mm. They're going to get pregnant easier and then use abortion to like clean up the mess instead mm. of thinking about it first, mm. which I don't think is a good argument. And I don't think anyone out there is out there going like, ah, oh, yeah, fuck it, lob it into me. It'd be grand. Mm. Um, like very, very, very few people are, are thinking about that going like, I'll just get the morning after pill, it's grand, this is great, blow mm. your beans, you know. Um, but it was associated with like an illicit sexual practice of people who weren't really taking care of themselves or they weren't really like making good moral choices. It was a moral judgment on how people were engaging in sex. So they were like, well, if we allow abortion to be used it's going to be misused. Mm-hmm. It's the same as like if we ease up on the, the 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 judgment of sex workers, then sure everybody's going to be a sex worker. Yeah, yeah. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. The, the floodgates open. Yes. And we see with this OnlyFans thing. Like there, I, yeah, this fear. It's all run by fear. Yeah. You know, it takes a long time for a value to change because of fear. But is it a good value? Some people who don't believe in abortion would say uh, abortion should be illegal. You're killing a baby. Like I don't think so. I think it's like fuck it, man. <laughs> Better to fucking chop it up and hoover it out than raise it and and yeah. abuse it and fuck it up for life for, and not love it and have it be a fucking, you know, a person that doesn't have a a good time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it's that I just, person's choice. I think, like, yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting that there's a lot of the people who were on that no side and saying that it was wrong to kill a baby with her were the same people who wouldn't support single mothers the, who had born, a baby yeah. who was born in crisis or whatever. So it's only you important know, when it's inside. So, when it comes out, then it's not as important. Yeah, you know. But I'm saying about the sex work thing, like it, Eileen Warnos had to do it 
because it was all she knew. Yeah. I'm not and sure she, she had to. I think she did it because it's all she knew. But and, but and, and she couldn't she, do she anything else. She, is the thing. She, yeah, she yeah, but but I think she she didn't try. But she could have worked in a Tesco's checkout or something like that. She could have done any of those menial jobs. So why didn't she do that? Kid. Then is the thing because. Because she felt comfortable. She was in charge. I mean, this is, she was a very angry person. She was very, like, she wasn't able to hold down, work with people. Or can you imagine her working in a checkout in Tesco's and being like kowtowing to people and being. Sure, what's being a prostitute? Like when you're in checkout in Tesco's, the most you're dealing with someone is for five to seven minutes. Like mm. how long does a blowjob so in a car park actually, last? Actually, what we're talking about is a sociological <laughs> theory called um, Arlie Hostchild is a sociologist based in Berkeley. She came up with the theory of emotional labour. And her theory like, was all about um, air hostesses, actually, and how right. a large part of their work, their labour, was based around having to put on this act mm. of kindness and sweetness and um, generosity towards the patrons, whatever. And Even I guess if they're in a fowler, like they had to be nice. Kind of like this kind of argument we're having now at the moment about is prostitution kind of, but it's different. It's different. It's different to being a like obviously if there's people in Tesco's checkout going. But it's nothing like prostitution. Yeah. I'm not saying it is. I'm but just saying in terms. It feels, of, I work retail, man. Sometimes it feels like prostitution. in terms of the emotional labour. You have to shut the fuck few... up when someone's giving you shit, and you're like. <laughs> You, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Like you might yeah. as well have a fucking yeah, yeah. A dick hanging. But she out of obviously mouth. had a limit to the emotional labour that she was willing to people. And I guess in something risky like sex work, especially on hitchhiking sex work and mm. whatever, like it's much more risky in terms of what people are willing to push further your boundaries. Have much emotional labour you're going to. Um, I remember watching a documentary about it was Louis Thoreau um, in some kind of. Chicken ranch or something kind of place in Nevada. Yeah, it was a it was a brothel. Yeah, and again, yeah. it was confusing for some of the. Pro- it just seemed to me that they, some of the prostitutes were interviewed with their Johns, you know, and they were kind of playing whatever act. There was one guy who didn't want to have sex at all. He just wanted to kind of have this role play of whatever. I don't know, but it's up to the prostitutes that these Toe women sucking or whatever. to try to to try to estimate and gauge what it is this person wants and then how comfortable do I feel with this act that, you know, this person wants me to... to Most of them just want to talk. Yeah. Like that was the prevailing... But from that particular documentary, they yeah. were like, oh, I just want to come in and talk and sometimes be hell. And then yeah, so it's like that is emotional emotional labour. But mm. when you're in a risky and unchartered place like sex work, then how do you how do you limit, how do you create a set of boundaries around that? Well, when when a lot of people come in with really wacky, I'm sure, wacky, fantastical stuff that they want to... So at the top of the show, I was saying that the, the, the fact that she chose the riskiest version of this like truck stop hooker mm. which is like you're getting into cars with strangers so they can transport you anywhere mm. um it's not like you're in a uh you know like some kind of a brothel or some kind of a you know a, a, a bricks and mortar thing where there's a security there's mm. you know a camera security there's people watching you yeah if something goes wrong and there's like a fucking six foot dude in your room and there's no one outside like where you, if you shout they'll come in and protect you like mm. you could get really damaged like um there's no like set out menu and pricing system so people mm. would negotiate and go like so when you're in the heat at the moment or someone's like oh gargle my balls for $40 yeah yeah sure 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 <laughs> like the, you know, these things that you shout out at the end or whatever and uh, there's no structure in what she was doing so obviously there was going to be some kind of negotiating skills if she's not good at so, like emotional labour if she's not good at you know, swallowing her pride or whatever I'm sure she'd get into very aggressive situations with Lance and Car, like take it out there pull it out there what do you want me to do? Oh, for fuck's sake. Do you want me to do that? Oh, gee. Like, no one wants a cranky hooker. Mm. That's not what you're paying for. 
Or maybe you pay more, like for $30. No you're one like, wants to Okay, cranky. it's $30, but I'll be cranky. You're like, okay, go on in. But again, these were short. I mean, she, these were, it's not like sitting, I, I, I have to stop using the checkout girl, like theory. As the, as the base yeah, employment. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. like, well, no, it's not even that. It's just, it's just an average kind of employment yeah, that, 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 that she could potentially have gotten into yeah. without maybe necessarily having a college degree or whatever. Do you mm. know that kind of way? It was something that was open to her and she chose not to go down that route. But what I'm arguing is that she didn't really have that option because she just didn't have the wherewithal to sit somewhere for eight hours and be polite the way and the ha- movie, use the emotional labour for... <laughs> the way the movie played it out was she thought she was going to go in and be a fucking paralegal secretary straight that off the street. was so sad. That I mean, is that true? Part. I read that that wasn't true. That was dramatised for the movie. But she didn't saddest. actually try to do yeah, that. Yeah, so we need to tell the listeners what that is about. So basically there's one section that I use this in my social psychology mm. class. It's so sad. She dickies herself all up. She gets her little briefcase. She puts together a resume with like her bare little scant little bits of experience she has. She marches into this guy's office for to go for this interview as a legal secretary. And he has interpreted her kind of blonde beach bum kind of like bit of a dimbo kind of mm. look as being somebody who's been partying in Daytona Beach for 20 years and now wants to have a piece of the pie so he starts like kind of having a go at her or he berated her really he badly. really took her apart yeah. but his angle was he was obviously a frustrated overworked lawyer and he saw her as a beach bum he wasn't attacking her because he saw she he, he thought he was disrespecting her as a prostitute he just was but but that's the way she felt it was like you're, you're on less time, than at the same time she must have been fucking delusional to think that she could walk in she's just like you know what I think I'm gonna be a lawyer man <laughs> And she just walked into a lawyer's she office. She would have made a, a great lawyer. But would she? It's <laughs> no. not Aaron Brockovich. Like, this is this is fucking, like, she is uneducated. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And she walks into a lawyer office and goes, I think a lawyer would be a good job. And later on in the movie... Uh, she wasn't trying to be a lawyer. She was uh, wanted to be a legal later secretary. Later on in the movie, she's like, I could have been a lawyer or an astronaut or an engineer or this or that and all these, like, highfalutin jobs. And you're like, you could have, quite possibly. I mean, maybe... Well, probably not. Because you have bipolar, you know, you have borderline personality disorder and uh, uh, like really bad attention span and you, mm. you know, you're violent and you're, yeah, all mm. these outward. You probably wouldn't thrive in a college environment. Like, there's an awful lot of obstacles what there. What would she have been good at? Ah, oh, fuck, I don't know, man. Come on, she must, there must be something that all of these traits could have been. She could, she could have been like a, a like a hurling coach or something. <laughs> She's really good yeah. shouting at shouting. Well, you pull on the ball, pull on it, like or something. You know, really like, exactly. That's what she could have done. Yeah. Um, like a, like an American football coach screaming the crowd. Come on, you fucking pussies! Like, I just think that they, they in the movie they they obviously dramatize it, but in real life, like listening to the the the, the interviews and stuff with Nick Broomfield, she had delusions of of grandeur. She had she thought like, oh, if I can only just if I could just get into like this thing, if I was mm. only given a chance, and then like. At any small chance that she was given, like marrying your man, kind of fucked it up in nine weeks, man. Mm. Like it's not, I don't know, not destined for shit, but like, I don't know. We kind of got a little bit off track. I I, I wanted to just talk, like, if anybody out there, you know, uh, wants to talk about sex work with this uh, Eileen Warnos thing in mind, I'm sure we're going to do a live chat when this episode comes out. I'd love to talk to you about it because I, I, as I said, I've only mm-hmm. a, a very rarely engaged in any kind of that business. I was, I, I I'm eminently satisfied with, uh, you know, self abuse, as they call <laughs> it in the Irish language. What's it called? It's, it's it literally translates as self abuse or self pollution. 
but in Irish. Yeah, yeah, in Irish. Never. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm a secondary school teacher as well. Yeah. I do, we don't teach shit like that in secondary yeah. school. The, the, the Irish for, like translation for masturbation is self pollution. That's what they call. It. So like, uh, yeah, I'm totally like I don't need to you know go out and assault people or I don't need to pay for sex or whatever in my own in my own world. I've never thought I needed to do that. So I've never. I've never had a, a part of that world. I don't know what any of it is like. I don't, you know, it's very Distant alien to me. Yeah, I don't have a notion. Maybe my 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 morals are too stringent. Well, there's a huge and portion, a pretty loose morals, like a large know. portion of society that are very aware of that. You know, it's yeah, I, I'm not, and I, I I would like to be more if it gives like the, the discussions like this a little bit more context. You know, um, absolutely. You're going to go out and get some first-hand experience. No. <laughs> <laughs> Double-handed experience. I'm not going. I'm not going to. I'm not. But I'm saying that, like, let's talk about it. People out there on the internet. Uh, I know there's a bunch of people in Ireland as well who who are engaging in a lot of sex positive talk, a lot of like sex work support and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And like people do it, and it's a job, and you know, paying taxes and they're you know they're making it fucking making a making a life in the big city. It happens. Uh, I just don't have a part of it, and I don't understand. A lot of parts of it. I'm not, not going to make a judgment, but just mm-hmm. with this in mind, it just seems like Eileen uh, Warnos could have could have done something else, but this ended up just being like this self fulfilling prophecy. Maybe that the internal engine of her self esteem couldn't power her, yeah, through like a normal job, and yeah. and her emotional labor. She she'd rather like suck a dick than than you know. Be nice to somebody yeah. <laughs> at the checkout for seven minutes. <laughs> for seven hours, okay? It's a yeah, difficult no, I know, job. I worked one, on a checkout it's, and it's hard. It's one at a time though. So like if she's going yeah. to make a $400 a day, that's 10 lads. Day. When was the last time you took like even one dick 10 times in one day? <laughs> like that's emotional say it's labor. hard work, yeah. That's emotional labor right there. Yeah. So like. Psh. But yeah, no, I do think the sex work was a huge part of the fact that this trial was so achieved. So famous, but also so judged. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Why it was just kind of like at the top of people's why, why people wanted to discuss it all the time mm. because so salacious prostitute lesbian um, child sex abuse there was all of this and it was a, a female a female that was a huge female term. serial killer was the mm. top of the headlines mm. that's the thing but it wasn't so, she wasn't the first female serial we've no. talked about this already yeah, yeah, yeah so she wasn't right she, so they re- they brought back but if you're gonna if you're gonna tell a story tell a legend that's that's what they're going on with like. Sorry? If you're going to tell the story, tell the legend. Like, that's oh. what they want to go on with. They were trying to monetize her. I mean, talk about that again in a sec. Like, yeah. they're trying to monetize her, so she has to be the first. Yes, exactly, yeah. You know, there's Lizzie Borden and all of these mm. people. That but they were all trying to monetize. I mean, there weren't several police fired. We're going to talk about it yeah. later on, yeah. So these, uh, the the the, the, es- the escalating s- murder scenes, let's say, when she's killed somebody, mm. first lad got two bullets, the next lad got six, the next lad got nine. Like, there was a lot of... Um, so Walter Gino Antonio was shot four times and his body wasn't fully naked. You know, the 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 state child abuse investigator shot six times, once in the head. Mm. Like, so she was going in for the murder. The first time was like, bum, bum, self-defense. And the next one was like, I like how that felt. So she's standing over him, you know, like yeah, shooting yeah, a bullet yeah. into his head. Like, it's an escalation. Um, she claims that they all kind of worked out as there were normal jobs. She was out earning three to $400 a week in the, in the knowledge of... Um, her 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 partner, uh, t- uh, Tyra. Tyra. Tyra knew that she was earning four hundred dollars yeah, a week because she was fucking spending half it down the pub. Mm. So like, once in a while, something would go wrong, 
and these guys who would start to get violent or they'd ask to do something and they'd be told to pay more money and there's like, I don't want to pay more money and there'd be a tussle, couple of slaps and then she pulled out the gun, bang, bang, right? That was what Eileen said that was happening. Um, in the movie, it was depicted like that she had accidentally done it the first time and went, oh, this is a much uh, better option than like having sex with a bunch of dudes for money. What happens if I just like pretend I'm going to have sex with them and then just before I just pull out the gun and I go like, give me your money or you're dead. And then she just shoots them and then takes their money in their car. So it seemed like she figured out like, oh, I can be like a serial killer instead of a prostitute. Like it escalated, mm. almost associating sex work with, with murder as its as its uh, definitive conclusion, which is a little bit, I think, as yeah, but well. You know? No, like as you said, like there was a plethora of men in between all of these murders. It wasn't like That's she was thing. just like, you know, you know what, feck it, I'm going to stop prostituting and I'm going to start just murdering but and there was dozens of dudes like she's getting $400 a day a 40 pound a pop and these murders were months apart mm. so she's like she kills one guy and then she fucking has like 45 cl- more clients and then number 46 got a bit violent she's like bang so when she says it's about self defence I, I find that like believable in some mm. way because she's just at the end of I don't know like to be honest I have a little bit of an issue with that in that Seven. Seven. I mean, if you're having such an issue in work, if I worked in a pub and somebody threw a glass at me the first night that I worked there, and or I worked there for years and somebody threw a glass at me mm. and then I did something, I broke a pool cue over their head in self-defense because they threw this, they're, they're trying to glass me or whatever. And nobody's then, fucking trying to glass you. Nobody's going to ever glass me. I'll fucking break a pool cue over your head. Well, yeah, so then... Three weeks later or a month later, I've shared millions of points in the meantime and then somebody else tries to glass me and then I try to, I do the same thing except for this time I, st- I break the pool cue in, ca- in half and jam it in their back. Like, I'm getting progressively more and more violent. I would, like my boss or my family or somebody would say, do you know what, maybe it's time to get a job in a different bar or maybe it's time but to again, stop, you know. She's, she was trying to, uh, I, that, this, trying this to is, get out of yeah, it. Yeah, but this is where I have the issue with the self-defense thing. If something happens twice, maybe you're like, okay. But when it seems to be this very systematic reoccurrence of the same crime over and over again, it just to me seems like she, and the development in terms of the amount of bullets she's using, it just seems to be like something different I'm not I'm trying not to judge but I do feel like it's not quite self-defense I think she's gotten into some kind of like the lone sheriff kind of she is yeah, now she's, vigilante prostitution yeah, she justice. sees herself as a vigilante you know um, that these men have acted out in some way and she has decided that she's going to take law and anybody who crosses over a threshold these new boundaries that she's set for herself and is now able to with her new theory and her new approach is now able to defend she's somehow managed to find this kind of a place of power. Yeah, but there's justification And she's for enjoying her. the power. Dude, how many times in all of her prostituting up until this, like she's 33 at the time that crime mm. started. So for her whole 20s, how many times was she in a really compromising yeah, situation yeah. where somebody got violent mm. and then they went, shut the fuck up, bitch, and then like mashed her head into the, yeah. the car seat and she, all she had to do was just shut the fuck up and take what was given to her. Mm. And then take the money and then like just it's deal hard, with it afterwards. But it's hard to, it, she it finally found a way been, to, 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 to defend herself. She finally found a way to retaliate. Yeah, but it has to went, have been premeditated. Like the second one, third one, fourth bit. Like whatever. Yeah, I just think in they the have movie to, it sets to it out as premeditated. I don't think it is. No, I don't think it's premeditated in that she's like, this guy tonight is definitely going to get it. Yeah. But I think it's premeditated that if there's anything I don't like about this situation, yeah. fuck it, I'm going to. 
<laughs> I think a lot of people who carry guns on them all the time are like, if some shit kicks off, I'm willing to use this motherfucker. Yeah. And to be honest, if you're carrying a gun and you're not thinking that, get rid of that gun. Because if you pull out a gun... Somebody else is going to use it on you. Somebody else is going to fucking take it. If you're not willing to shoot somebody, mm. don't be having a gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the thing. Like, she had a gun. She was willing to use it. She was in a risky situation. And she's like, not fed up of being a prostitute, but she was fed up of getting, like, lads who would take advantage and start assaulting you mm. go beyond your consent in the, in the in the prearranged, you know, monetary transaction of sex. They're like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to fucking lob it into your arse here and there's nothing you can do about it because if you get up, I'll punch you in the head because you're only a hooker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was like, no. And if you try it, I fucking shoot you. And then they tried and then it was bang, bang. And then you're wrapped up in an electric blanket in the woods somewhere. Yeah. So in her mind, it's justification. And I've read a lot of stuff online that were like, yeah, she's a fucking, she's a, uh, you feminist know, a feminist icon for doing mm. that. She's finally stood up to people who abuse sex workers. And you're like, I don't know, like if you're going to, are you going to wave the flag that hard on, on Ailey Morris? Like that's, <laughs> yeah. that's a. That's a big, uh, that's a like a big choice for your team. If you want to get her on your team as a feminist icon, I think you're yeah. gonna lose. You're gonna lose a lot of support. It's just weird. It's just a weird way that they that they depicted it in the movie, which seems like she was going. I'm premeditating, like because most people's um, first exposure is that movie because it's an Oscar winner, where she stopped going. Like, well, I'm not having sex with these guys anymore. I'm going to pretend I'm having sex and I'm going to hold a gun on yeah. them and then shoot them. That's cold-blooded, premeditated murder. And then she's coming back going, oh my God, I did it again, I have another car. Ooh. And Shelby's going like, where'd you get the other car? I'm so naive. Also, give me loads of money for drugs and drink. <laughs> like, it doesn't, all of that shit is yeah, bullshit. It just does not up, doesn't. No. But uh, there was a, a grossly overlooked detail from her first victim, who was a convicted this mental patient, who, who was a horrific a horrific violent sex offender who had served 10 years in a maximum security facility for numerous violent sex crimes. So the thing is... That guy was just released from prison. Mallory. Mallory. Yeah. So if she had have just agreed to, admitted, sorry, to his murder in self-defense, she may have, but but she kind of instantly, I think when she... The court proceedings went on so that she said... Uh, uh, self-defense on this guy. He did this thing to me. He started, and she described the whole thing in court. And the trial that she was in when she described it is for that murder and that murder alone because mm. it was in that particular county in Florida in that court. And what the judge did was, he was making loads of like moral judgments about her life choices and all this kind of stuff. And what the judge did was, well, actually I have information here. And he started throwing in information from other cases, which is not you allowed. Can't do, well, there's the Williams rule what they mm. have in Florida, which the judge brought into play, which is you can build, you can build up a pattern yeah. like uh, of a criminal behaviour if you choose to with this Williams rule, which is just specific to Florida. But the other name. murders came after this crime, so it shouldn't yeah. have been, it, it was, they were committed yeah. after, mm. not beforehand. Yes. Um, and he brought all this stuff in into the into the court case and swayed the jury and then forced the conviction based on the, based on the way, way of the evidence then mm-hmm. that she was like a serial doer of this thing. So it said it wasn't self-defense because you did it again and again and again. And she's like, the first one was, and that's what this trial is for, motherfucker. And you're not supposed to be bringing up that shit. Mm. But they did do that. They did bring it up. And I think it was shady. And I think it was a sham trial. And so did some of the legal uh, uh, representatives and people who were sacked. watching it. She sacked her first legal representative, yeah, right? because he was a public defender. Mm. And uh, 
yeah, it was it was such a fucking sham though, do you know? Um and and her lawyer her lawyer at the time uh was a fucking dum dum and we'll talk about her new appointee afterwards. Tell them all about it, those conspiracy guys. The fourth of July nineteen ninety one then, the arrest and the conviction. Uh fourth of July ninety one Eileen was arrested at her local bar, The Last Resort, and then the scramble for evidence was on for the investigating police. They got old items like guns and watches that were pawned in the area from, you know, Eileen dropping them into the pawn shops that she had robbed them off of the dead men to get cash. They analysed them for fingerprints and found her fingerprints on them. Um, they also did your man Seams's car. The guy that the body couldn't be found, so they were able to pin her to the murder even though they couldn't find the body because her footprint was in the... Window. Window. Uh, thrown up for a bit of purchase. So after Eileen, uh, after Eileen's arrest, uh, Tyra fled and was found in Scranton, Pennsylvania, home of Michael Scott and the office. Uh, and the police took care of her uh, and had her eventually testify as a state's witness against the confessions of Eileen mm-hmm. to her. They got Tyra to call Eileen, who's in prison, arrested because they had enough to arrest her, but not enough to convict. So they needed a confession. So Tyra agreed to have a conversation to try and entice uh, Eileen to incriminate herself. Uh, and on January 16th, 1991, Eileen confessed over the phone to Tyra. And that's played out in the movie and in the documentary. Uh, they played mm-hmm. the actual tape of that recording. And it's kind of like Tyra going, like, they're going to do me. Like, please don't let me go down for these crimes that I didn't yeah, do. Yeah, they're like harassing my family. Yeah. And but she really went after her. R- r- emotional heart, mm. heartstrings are, you mm. know, being plucked like motherfuckers. And Eileen like kind of went, is this the way it's going to be? Like she kind of said on the phone, like, is this it? And Tyra's kind of like, yeah. It's like, are you, did you just kiss this older Judas? Mm. Like, is it me, Jesus? You know, this kind of thing. Um, She fucked her over, I think. She totally uh, fucked her over. The last, uh, the last person that she had any kind of love or trust for fucked her life up Mm-mm. and um so that from this excellent documentary and this is one of the things i would 100 percent recommend you watch watch them in this order watch the movie first then the 1994 doc the selling of a serial killer and then the 2002 uh nick broomfield one uh the life of uh eileen mornos so the selling of a serial killer we see a whole different side to this conviction you don't see this in the movie and it's not really told i think this should be like recreate i need a podcast I listen to a half dozen podcasts none of them talked about this shit there's a different side to the conviction and seemingly a remorseful confession of the first woman serial killer. We see this woman taken advantage of by money-hungry parasites out to commodify her suffering, her crimes and her notoriety. Uh, Arlene Praley and Steve Glazer, Dr. Legal, they call them, uh, they're featured in this doc pretty heavily and they're two really slimy fucking creatures. Uh, Arlene runs a horse stud farm and she volunteered to adopt Eileen when she saw her on the TV and get her, uh, uh, get her out of prison. Which Eileen didn't want. Not really, but she was like, go on, she's fuck it. Like, what have I got to lose? And Arlene was like, okay, when, you, when we get you out, I'll get you a good lawyer. And when we get you out, um, you'll come and live on the farm and work on the farm here with us. And, and when have to be Nick Broomfield was doing the second documentary, mm. they, um, he wanted, he approached them because he obviously needed to get legal access, whatever. And uh, 
both Arlene Prowley and Steve Glazer said that it would be twenty five thousand dollars to um get access in the first documentary. In the first documentary. That, yeah. And he was like, But you're she's not gonna get a chance to spend twenty five grand. Why would she need twenty five grand? And they were like, Well, she has indicated to us that she would like us to have the money, but as her you know, as the people oh, who guide her, blah blah blah. Eventually he ended up giving them ten grand. But just like like, he gave he gave Ar- Arlene two and a half, and he gave them he gave them I think eight thousand mm. to give to uh, Eileen in yeah. prison, but she never got it. Yes, your man Steve mm. Glazer must have took it. Mm. And there was a cheeky part in the documentary where Nick Broomfield went back to the to the farm to try and interview uh, Arlene after a time, and she's like, "Get away from here! You never gave me my money." He's like, "I did give you my money. I have it on camera." <laughs> Me giving it to Steve and Steve bringing it to the house. And she said, well, he never gave it to me. Like, it's such a fucking sketchy pair of cunts who just basically uh, appointed themselves as gatekeepers yeah, yeah, to yeah. the Eileen Warnos story. Out of nowhere. I don't know how Arlene got to adopt her as a child. Very weird. But His, again... Her whole shtick was, um, I really want her to be part of a family, to know what it's like to be part uh, of a family. Like, what fucking family? Well, she came off as a slimy creep who's just taken advantage of someone who's in a very vulnerable position. Mm. And I think... Not like dissimilar to other relationships. Eileen is throwing up those, she's throwing up those fucking uh, 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 flare guns. Yeah, of, yeah, vulnerability. Like, come and, and take yeah. advantage of me. Like, mm. I am an open book. But then, you know, wh- which one of us wouldn't when your back is totally to the wall? Tyria has just screwed her over completely. Every single person she has ever had any kind of faith in has I mean, like, she's literally g- on. The, on death row, She's circling like, the drain, yeah. you know. So it's like any any hope. Maybe there is some speck of hope. But like imagine but, you're, but how, the you're wor- the worst thing ever could have happened, because what it was was she was a, in a, in a, a like a legal battle for her life. Yeah, and Steve Glazer just fucking made a testimony on he, her behalf. He fucked her. He's he's this bus stop lawyer who had never prosecuted a murder case, who took it on to see how much money that he could make. Uh, from like the publicity, getting a book deal. He wasn't deal. trained for this particular type a- of law all. at He'd all. He'd never done it mm. before. Uh, so they were also trying to, like uh, uh, Arlene and Stephen were trying to convince uh, uh, Eileen to kill herself in prison mm. before the execution time. Even so, go as, so going so far as to suggest ways that she could do it, giving her plans, mm. giving her ideas. And she says this herself to Nick Broomfield. Um, Steve was trying to negotiate like uh, film rights and uh, maybe even a TV show rights. He was being the go-between anyone that wanted any kind of contact with Eileen Mornos at all. Mm. Uh, Steve was being the gatekeeper. He was going like, you got to pay me first. Yeah. He was her agent. Mm. He also became the agent for Arlene who became the voice for uh, Eileen because yeah, yeah, yeah. she had adopted her. So it was like these two people on the outside had went, no, no, she, she's going to be huge. But she did, like she, she cut ties with Arlene before she um, was... Before she died, right? Oh yeah, no, she cut ties with mm. Arlene like before the end of the Nick Broomfield yeah. documentary. Mm. But what Arlene tried to do was she was sending letters into Eileen in prison and saying, uh, don't talk to Nick Broomfield, he's a sketchy guy. Yes. And then finally, Broomfield got to meet her. Mm. And she was like, oh yeah, fuck those two. They're trying to take advantage of me. But the story came out in that, like selling a serial killer, the whole story came out and said like, people are trying to get me to die. What Steve like, Glazer did was convinced her to go no contest on the guilty verdict for all of her murders. So mm. she got six life sentences, right? All because Steve Glazer uh, advised her incorrectly because he wanted her to be convicted as a murderer and then die and then he'd hold all the rights to her life and yes. he'd sell it and make a bomb. Yeah. 
Well, well can you imagine? To, like to be being... fair, she was very back and forth. There was she was very un- she seemed very unstable in what her approach to it was. Like she did, as I said, you know, she had this whole clemency or death, clemency or death. Yeah. She didn't want to be sitting around in a jail cell for twenty years with people like like trawling over her life and everything else, you know. But she she did kind of scramble back and forth between you know saying it was self defense and then lying saying it that was a lie eventually but then saying like oh no she had killed them and blah blah she was wavering back and forth wildly it was just like somebody who's totally unhinged which you can understand how she would be completely unhinged at that stage considering she had such mental health issues considering she's had this fucked up oh, yeah, childhood right, like. and life considering she'd been screwed over by literally every she, of course she's like a wild animal with her back against the wall scrambling for anything she could any hope that she did have but also wildly swinging she thought that she thought that having Steve Glazer in her corner would allow her to possibly get freedom. But what the two of them actually did was they went like Find her death. Yeah. You, you, you're just gonna have to die. And if you're okay with that, like Jesus will forgive you. And then Eileen was like, Yeah, go on then. I will die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did it, whatever. And then the two of them were like, Oh yes, it worked. Brilliant. Mm. Like very, very scary. The crux of the findings in this documentary then was that Steve had convinced Eileen that to plead guilty would be the best option as Eileen had in a despondent moment claimed to him that she wanted to die and apparently all people on death row were like, I just wanted to be over now, you know. So she claimed that the crimes were self-defence at the start for her public defender's hearing and that she wasn't guilty of murder or premeditated murder. But in order to secure the film rights to her story, Steve needed her to plead guilty. She needed to be convicted and or die. Mm. So she's convicted it's enough to sell it, but she has to sign off on her likeness. So she's dead, it'd be very handy. So they were like, maybe you could kill yourself, maybe. Um, but she did think that she, like, there was a huge amount of paranoia, and whether it was paranoia or not, but she felt that, like, her food was being tampered with by certain guards. She wouldn't eat while um certain specific guards were on duty. Just, like, horrific way to end out oh, her yeah, days. She absolutely. didn't even have a last meal. You know, she had a coffee. <laughs> she, That's they, how fucking They gave her chicken Fried chicken and chips And she bought $20 of Fried chicken and chips And didn't eat it <laughs> She got her Carter KFC And left Yeah that's there. right You're only allowed to have Like when you're Like your last meal Has to be like $25 or less Yeah because if you're like Can I have an all you can eat Chinese And then just <laughs> no. eat it Slowly for two years uh, So there's loads of court cases In many counties in Florida And, and Eileen was um, all kind of uh, showboating for the governors, district attorneys, ministers, aldermen, and whoever was up for re-election that year. And she was dragged around like a show pony from county to county, being like put up on these, you know, hugely popular and televised and uh, reported on court cases, getting a death sentence in each one. She managed to accrue six. Uh, there was even police involved in the plot, as you said, Grainne. And uh, they, they convinced uh, Eileen that her life in prison wouldn't be worth living, even if she got her sentence commuted to life as Ted Bundy was offered at one point even. So she she chose not to contest the charge of plea guilty. Imagine she was convinced by these prison guards, police, her lawyer, her adopted mother, like, if you stay in prison, your life is not going to be worth living. The police were basically, we're going to fuck you up. And uh, that doc tr- threw so much shade on Dr. Legal, Steve Glazer, and his skinny accomplice, Arlene, who took money from Broomfield. Uh, they, they, Steve Glazer confessed to be under the influence of drugs. He smoked seven joints mm-hmm. on the way to fucking advise her legally of this thing. And in the second documentary, uh, they, they called The Life and Death of a Serial Killer, uh, Nick was thrust into this rare gonzo role because usually he's not so involved. Uh, he was called as a witness in this pre-execution appeal of Eileen in Florida's Marion County. So they're really 
really telling and, and hard to watch interviews in this one where uh, Eileen rescinds all of her previous claims of self-defence and admits to the heinous version of the crime she committed saying like I shot them, I shot them, fucked them uh, you know they deserve to die and all this stuff she wanted the chair she said and she didn't want to jeopardise that by speaking to Nick Broomfield frankly about what really happened uh, but he did record her secretly though and then he said that uh, uh, she said like I, 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 I didn't tell do you, it yeah I, wanted, I didn't do it it was self-defence but I don't want them to change the ruling of the death the death penalty because the prison guards uh, and the police were torturing her in jail. Like you said, she was she was thought she was getting her food poisoned. Uh, they were they were playing these like she said they were fucking um, like playing radio frequencies through the TV and the radio that were uh, messing with her head. They were like she wouldn't shower. She would have to just like yeah, use well, the sink the water in her pressure, room. The water yeah. pressure was broke, so she couldn't have a shower. Mm. They were poisoning her, pissing in her food and all this stuff, and um, they were coming in her food, and she was eating it. Going, it's like I know what cum tastes like. Mm. Like what the fuck are you doing in my mashed potatoes or whatever? And uh, she said that there were re- there were reports of her saying that they were trying to make her crazy enough to kill herself. And she complained that these frequency, uh, uh, these frequencies coming from the TV that were trying to drive her insane. Every time she went to write her story down on paper, write a letter to someone, it'd be this like, like this thing that made her head mm. feel heavy. And she was convinced it was coming out of the telly. Uh, there was also frequent strip searches. They put her handcuffs on too tight all, all the time. They were kicking the door all day, all hours of the day and night. Uh, there were loud window checks, knocking on the windows, uh, low water pressure. And then they left her mattress get all mildewy so she was getting like oh, chest geez. infections and stuff like that. They weren't changing her, her bed linen uh, enough. She said it was a living hell. Like who'd want to continue like, you'd be on like, that nightmare? Yeah. Fucking give me the fucking injection, you know? So all of these worrying testimonies and the performance in court when the judgment was upheld meant that she wasn't a proper sound mind and body. And the psychiatric examiners set out by Jeb Bush, uh, George W's brother, uh, failed in their task to assess her for uh, for execution. Like, I think they misassessed her. She she got thirty two out of forty points for being mentally unfit to be tried yeah. with so a capital um, with 30, a capital yeah, offence. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Well, go back and tell me that bit again. Because I know she, she got it was like she went through a test and there was forty points of like yeah. whatever psychopathy. If you got over thirty, if you got over twenty, yeah. you 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 shouldn't be put to death for your crimes because right. you're actually. Uh, she like, scored thirty two. She scored thirty two out yeah. of forty, and if mm. you get more than twenty. Uh, it's supposed to be like okay well Jesus you're fucking you know coffee only not spelled mm. the same and you're not supposed to be put to death for your crimes that you'll just go into jail or whatever but they were like no we gotta make an example of this bitch she is going down but Jeb signed off on this thing he kind of fudged the numbers and went like fuck it she's going to the ch- she's mm. going to the, the, the injection Um, it was a month before his re-election so so it looked Eileen, good for him absolutely Eileen called it out and went like that fucking guy it's all about politics, man. These motherfuckers over here are trying to kill me. These cops over here are trying to sell my fucking life rights. And there was a guy, Vinegar is his surname, and he was like the chief in Marion County and he had to quit. There was two other guys had to quit as well. They had to quit their jobs publicly because Eileen Warren was called them out from her prison cell saying, you're harassing me, psychologically manipulating me to kill myself so that you'd be able to sell. And they were already in negotiations that had fucking... Hollywood uh, uh, on the phone, They yeah. had recordings of these phone calls that were trying to sell... Her fucking life right. She felt, she thought that they were onto her earlier. This is one of her theories, that they were onto her earlier in her series of murders. They were following her for five months, she said. She reckoned that they could have caught her at murder number three. Yeah. But they wanted to kind of lead her on to be this like first female serial killer. And you know what? I wouldn't put it past them. And I wouldn't put it past them being like that for Dahmer, for John Wayne Gacy, for Bundy. Mm. 
Like they knew about these motherfuckers. Mm. Like Ted Bundy was arrested. He was in court. He jumped out of a second story, uh, a second story uh, window and landed and ran off and was free for another few months in Florida. And he ended up committing a bunch more murders in a sorority house mm. or whatever. So like these motherfuckers know this shit, but they want to cash it in. They want to go like, okay, well we could catch him now and like execute him now, but like. Scandalize it a bit more. Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't be that. Like, I mean, let's wait until it's a real big fish and then pull it in. You mm. know? Like, very sketchy performance. And Eileen was totally calling it out. Totally just going, like, these motherfuckers, they're they're dragging me around all the courtrooms all over Florida just to make them look like big shots. Do you know? She'd already got her whole arse exposed in that first trial when the yes. judge brought in the other fucking six cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she went around from county to county. She was sentenced to death she, on six you know counts. What? She actually, yeah, she, and she, like, well, that was one of the things she said at the end was like, you know, just, just put me out of my misery. Stop yeah. wasting taxpayers' money. That's what she, she said. kept on saying. I thought you that know? was a little bit of a virtue signal, but like anything to get the she people She was right, listening. though. She was fucking right. It was kind of tongue in cheek, but I think it was like to get the attention of the press to go, like, this woman is on about taxpayers, you know? Um, so on October 9, 2002, Eileen Warnos was executed by lethal injection in Florida State Prison. Her last words were cryptic, weird, and uh, a little bit kind of like, what had they given her before she <laughs> before she died? She said, I'd just like to say I'm sailing with the rock. Is that Dwayne Johnson? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, sailing and with I, the rock. I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus, June 6th, like the movie, Big Mothership and all. I'll be back. Is that like... I presume that's the scene, which is, in 1994, she probably has seen Independence Day in the cinema. It's probably the last movie she'd watched, where uh, Randy Quaid, at the end, is like, Hello, boys, I'm back. <laughs> that bit where he flies into the mothership at the end. I haven't seen the movie, or so I can't remember I, it anyway. I'm thinking that's probably the bit that she's referencing. And yeah. in fairness to her, kudos. That's a great <laughs> reference for final words. You know, she's like, I'm back. Yeah. You fucked me over and that Randy Quaid character got fucked over his whole life and eventually he got his chance to redeem himself. He's like, I'll be back. And maybe she thought about maybe culturally people accept her more, um, you know. Yeah. She, she, she'd be back in a way that, uh, like after her death Mm-mm. that people will re-examine this case. I mean, we've, like, we've given it a good go tonight. But I do like. think, like, it does, like, the, just that whole, the title of that movie. Mm. As soon as I saw the, the, the trailer for that movie and the like I got it it's like the whole point is like okay yes she was a serial killer yes yeah. she killed a lot of people in a vi- very violent way she was a very angry person whatever but to what extent is she a monster Society that is created, created by, yeah, us, yeah. by us by us th- that's what I thought it was too and then when I watched all of these videos online a lot of the YouTube stuff is like killer monster horrible bastard yeah. Eileen Warnos and I'm like oh I often have empathy for these serial killers because they went through some serious shit. Yeah. They did serious shit. Mm. But like, it's about... I don't oh, know how to respond to that. I don't know how either. Siri started... <laughs> Siri's chiming in on Siri's behalf of Eileen. I don't in. know how to respond to that. I don't think she was guilty either. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it, it puts the onus back on society. Yeah. You know, like, to so. what degree did, did her neighbours stand by? Did those kids who could have befriended her and took advantage of her. So what did every single person who screwed her over have a part to play in those men's murder? But, but in that case, then, Granny, you end up skirting the line between, like, culpability and victim blaming. So, like, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these girls that, let's say, Bundy uh, cajoled away from their groups, he comes over, good-looking dude, wearing a nice little, like, a white turtleneck, and he has his arm in a sling. Hey, 
I got this yellow Volkswagen Beetle over there. Would you be able to help me lift boxes into the back of it? And then the next thing is like, so come here. Does this cloth smell like chloroform to you? And then they're in the boot of the car or in yeah. the back of the car. And he brings them off somewhere and does his dirty business. So like, do we say like, why was there not a PSA put out there saying, come here. There's a good looking lad who's like asking people to put boxes in cars. Probably shouldn't be helping strangers. It's almost like dissolving the social fabric because you don't want to be seen as a cunt to say fuck off to people but in um in podcasts like uh i think crime junkies have that or, or my favorite murder have a a motto where it's like be weird be rude stay alive yeah do you know what it's actually did you ever watch that movie the girl with the dragon tattoo uh no it's a fantastic movie but so basically there is a serial killer in it which this girl with the dragon tra- tattoo tracks down it's a Swedish well, it's like Taken I, was, I, I know the movie and it has yeah. like the girl, what's, what's one the, of the, the girl with the sweaty crack or something <laughs> that's ser- it yeah the that's sequel. the serial yeah. Yeah, yeah. but um, so there's a, one part in the movie where he, she eventually gets speaking to the serial killer or whatever and of course mm. he reveals every fucking deep thought that he of had like Hannibal <laughs> rules so yeah so he um, yeah basically the one thing he said he discusses every single one of his victims he goes this person too polite this person too nice they, Like so basically all of his victims their their main problem was that they were too nice and they were too polite and they were too helpful yeah. they, they didn't want to appear rude or you know disrespectful in any way and it's it a serial killer's dream it was their their politeness that got them into trouble yeah, so what did you say it was again be rude be, be weird. rude be weird stay alive <laughs> So it's like someone's being a creeper, like, hey man, stop being a fucking creeper. Oh, yeah, sorry. But that's, a lot of that is the, that feminist argument about like Eileen Warnes. You hear the footsteps behind you. Women as you're going aren't home. allowed. This is the whole thing. Mm. Women aren't allowed to be angry. Women aren't allowed to be aggressive. Women are that was I think that was kind of more the feminist critique of of this, you know, as opposed to, oh, she's a woman, so she deserves empathy. Yeah. It was more kind of like, well, she doesn't deserve any more wrath because she was angry, right, than any man. But it's like, because she's a woman, she's not allowed to present herself in that way. The presentation of the self, which is, again, more sociological theory, there's certain ways that a woman is supposed, a feminine presentation of the self versus a masculine presentation of the self. These are two very but different it, kind of roles. But it cuts both ways. Like, there's a lot of, like, not super masculine men who feel that they're not presenting as masculine enough. And then there's a lot of masculine women who present not as feminine enough and they're paranoid about that. So, like, it cuts both ways, that, that argument. It's not just oh, a yes. feminist yeah, argument. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally, totally, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you, you said that I should go and look up this stuff when we, when we were talking about, like, uh, Eileen Warnos. Philosopher Pierre Bourdieu uh, wrote over 25 books and 300 essays and articles uh, and influenced by Marxist philosophies, wrote critically about neoliberal economic policies and globalisation. He was not a Marxist himself. Not a Marxist, but used it as a basis for his yes, own philosophy. Sure did, yeah. So you told me to look this stuff up. This is what my uh, p- precursory analysis of it is. I have opinions. I'll read it out quite quickly. Go on. We get it into our brain boxes and then you, you and I shall chat because this is your this is your jam. Uh, his writings are considered classics in the social sciences and humanities and they even squeak out into other disciplines like anthropology, cultural studies and education. So uh, we examine his theories with reaction to the case of Aileen Warnos in the fact that uh, how one sees oneself or how society has an influence on you is uh, how you turn out, basically. So, cultural capital. Uh, Bourdieu, like Marx, agreed that capital uh, formed the foundation of social life and dictated one's position in the social order. So the more capital you have, the more powerful you are. And Bourdieu took this out of the realm of merely the economic and into cultural. So similar to, uh, you know, Marx and the 
the power of the economic proletariat turning into turning into culture when ec- uh, economics became uh, unwieldy as a tool of promoting socialism. Uh, you turn it into a cultural lack and uh, people can still identify with it and support it. So he took elements of a person, the symbolic elements like skill, taste, clothes, material worth, credentials, qualifications, etc. that you can acquire from being part of a social class. So this cultural capital comes in uh, three Bourdieu flavors, uh, embodied, objectified, and institutionalized. So your accent is something like that's embodied, uh, it's embodied capital. Your expensive designer watch is objectified capital. And then like a master's degree is like institutionalized capital. Is that right? Yeah. That's so those are the ways that cult- you can have cultural capital for yeah. sure. So you can so, have a cool accent or like uh, big boobies or like, you know, you can be good looking. Yeah. So uh, natural, naturally good looking. And that's your embodied capital. And then if you're ugly, you have like expensive clothes and expensive cars and shit to be like, well, I'm not good looking, but I'm rich. And that's like where people can identify you as like, oh, he must be rich. Yeah, about worth, I suppose. Yeah. So basically, he talked about fields was another kind of important concept. Right? I have, I have yeah, habitus and I have fields. So we go yeah, to yeah. habitus first. Uh, it's the physical embodiment of this cultural capital, habits, skills, manners of thinking that would be that we have because of our life experience. So that's like the alien Mornos thing. Uh, the term he uses is the feel for the game. Uh, it means the unconscious reactions like a footballer unconsciously kicking the ball the right way. Uh, that comes from this habitus. It's the unconscious language that we use to navigate social environments too. Some might call them street smarts. Uh, this habitus also leans into taste and culture. Like people, uh, you know, people who are used to the opera like the opera. But if you don't, we all know that it's shit because, you know, it's a bit shit. Uh, or fine art, which most conspiracy people know is a way to, if you're a rich person to, you know, use as a tax write-off and you find a friend and get them to draw a picture and it's a hundred million dollars then you get that's how the mafia did it yeah so you do it um yeah so this aspect of habitus is often felt as the natural state and not developed over time uh so it's it's often overlooked in the individual and then feel is a distinct delineation between different areas of practice like religion and politics where in some cases they intersect uh, each has its own defined and accepted set of rules knowledge base and forms of capital uh, like the field of conspiracy theories for example you have you know, um, different variations of capital. Like some people have super integrity. Some people are uh, good with the, the, they come first with the story. It's like, yeah, that guy's good because he, you know, he comes first. Or people who predict stuff very well. There's lots of different flavors of conspiracy theory guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and each one leans in. Like I, my my cultural capital in conspiracy theories is probably like the research or the depth of thought that I go into mm-hmm. the topics. Uh, whereas other people, um, you know, like uh, James Corbett, for example, is very, very good at uh, finding like uh, quick and clear and concisely uh, conveyed facts that are, I, I think he's probably has the, the biggest integrity of anyone on YouTube or in podcasts. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to like conspiracy material, uh, his integrity is definitely his his uh, forte, yeah, his gold medal. So, like, is that is that Bildway, Bildia? Is yeah, that, he's is a really that, interesting character in his own right. Mm. When you think of that, he, he's so interested in class and why you, why you are really, really interested in conspiracy theories and why I'm interested in art. Like, where did you get your sensibilities and your cash. distinctions? I smoke cash. Yeah, where did you get that? And mm. I came up with how did I get to be me? Like, where did I get my tastes from? So he's kind of very interested in distinction and taste and these kind of dispositions that you have. Why do you kind of speak with a certain accent and I speak with a different kind of accent? Why do, Why am I wearing a dress and you're wearing a black tracksuit? You know, so why 
are, do you present yourself in the way that you do? And what do I present myself in the way? So he grew up in the south of France, in a poor family. His father was a postal worker and he was really intelligent and he got a scholarship to go to the um, Ecole Supérieure Normale in Paris. So he kind of got plucked from the abyss, mm. some rural little village. He, he had a life of stamping on grapes ahead of him. Yeah, and yeah. then was planted into the middle of this really like, basically being popped into Clongo's Wood or something essentially, yeah. but in the middle of Paris. Paul Mescal going to Trinity. Yeah, so yeah. He, exactly, exactly. So he's like, all of a sudden he's kind of like, What are these shirts? O'Neill's? I will wear them everywhere. Yeah, he's completely immersed in this new kind of lifestyle and starting to ask questions, I suppose. Mm. Or like, why are these people, these posh people behaving this way? And why do I not behave or look or sound that way? And how do I assimilate? And do I want to assimilate? And um, anyway, he went on to become a sociologist and came up with a theory of cultural capital, which is what he reckoned he has a certain type of cultural capital. If he brings that to the field of the rural village, his cultural capital works well in that field. Whereas it didn't really work very well for him when he was in the fancy pants school. He kind of had to change. He had to divide his habitus. He had to leave behind his cultural, culty sensibilities and try to kind of appear and fit in to this middle class kind of environment that he found himself in. Yeah. He had to he had to um, learn the talk of the area that he was in. He had to learn the, the language of the yeah. So when we think about if think about Eileen Warnus and her habitus. So like all of the things that she had in her like arsenal. So you think about a habitus, it's kind of like a bubble that surrounds like an aura. Mm. And inside our little habitus, we have our cultural capital, like our our accent, our education, our likes and our dislikes, our taste for things, our all of these kind of things are mannerisms that kind of indicate a certain kind of class. Mm. We have our economic capital and we have our social capital, the kind of friends that we have and the connections that we have and all that kind of stuff. Eileen had none of these things, none. really. She had yeah. no, she, she really had very little habitus at all. She had a habitus for being able to manipulate situations where she would be able to profit from it. So like she learned this one trick and it was shown a bunch of times talked about in the documentaries where she would get in the car and it was the same trick she played every time. She's like, here's a picture of my kids. Mm-hmm. I'm trying hard to feed them, blah, blah, blah. And that seemed to be the only type of like regular practiced interaction that she would have with people. The rest of the time, it was very reactionary. It wasn't yeah. like planned or whatever. It was um, reactive and not proactive, you know? Yeah, so her ability to gain traction within a field was always led to her being rejected from that field yeah. because she really had no capital as such to or bring to the field. one-to-one relationship. She yeah. couldn't, there was not much she was bringing to her relationship either. Like Exactly, because she always downgraded her own capital, whatever she could. She Like, even within that relationship with Lewis Felt, she could, like, he saw something in her, obviously, that was, yeah. he, he thought was worthy of wanting to marry her. But somehow She's she managed great at to. Sucking willies, is the thing. Yeah. He was sixty-nine, <laughs> and she Davis was like nineteen was and willing to suck his willy. But yeah, so. so she. But that was her capital. It was was uh, like I'm willing to with do, sexual with, do sex gratification. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and that only that is a finite kind of a capital that can only be used in certain situations and will not gain you any particular a particularly good position within any field. You know, so depends on whose dick you suck. Not really. I don't think so. No, Monica Lewinsky. Yeah, she got ruined, but like I don't know, some uh, actresses. Yeah, I think no, I think I think I think sexual. Um, sexual they're, they're led to believe that that's the case. If you do this, like the Harvey Weinstein stuff, I think like there's some women that Harvey Weinstein had sex with that never said anything, altered a whole Me Too, and yeah, they've never yeah. said anything because they already have their careers cemented. 
And they're like, if I start rocking the boat now, I might lose my place because I didn't say anything at the time. Yeah, yeah. And they didn't say anything when it was happening or they didn't say anything to the whole Me Too. Yeah, yeah. So their, (laughs) their, uh, their opinions, their reactions would have been negative towards them. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, totally. Like they overplayed or they didn't play their hand at the particular, at the right time, yeah. whatever. But, you know, I think in general, sexual capital is like a particularly, like it's not a, a strong form of capital. It's mm. not going to, it's you know, fleeting. it will depend on how you use it. Particularly depends on how a woman uses it. Yeah, yeah. You know, if a woman reserves her sexual capital to a certain degree, she can use that to find a position for herself but it's a very slim position she has to find that she has to navigate this very slim water where she's sexually desirable like sugar daddy shit like pure no no she has to be sexually desirable but at the same time seemingly pure for that oh. sexual capital to be of value like, in that particular field like in Britney the, Spears keeping her virginity yes exactly yeah. exactly you know you have to be sexually attractive to be feminine in a lot of societies, in a lot of fields. Provocative, and then, but not too provocative. Exactly. But you also have to be seemingly pure in it to be um, yeah, accepted or yeah. To, be, to, to use that to your advantage within any field. Britney Spears, Hannah Montana, Christina Aguilera. And then as soon as the cherry is popped, then the capital turns drops. into... The capital drops. Then. No, but it, all, it, turn, it goes up to the next level where you just print more money. Yeah. Sexy money. <laughs> yeah. And then you're all like, get a dirty, get a fucking vacation, my fanny. It's like you just whap your pussy out on every music video or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's, so Eileen, right, so there's another kind of development then on the idea of the habitus. So there's the, the individual habitus that you have, but also there's the class habitus. So here you live in um, kind of Stony Batter area of Dublin. It's an inner city part of Dublin. You've got yeah. like an older kind of a, a, a community here. There's a particular type of of um of habitus that the community the inner city dublin communities have if you're a member of this community you really probably like supporting the dubs like football you probably like having a drink in local pub around here there's a particular accent that you will probably have there's a particular way of walking and greeting people that you will have there's particular type of television programs that you might, might particularly like like probably going to the opera is not a pastime of the people of this neighborhood whereas watching coronation street a soap opera on the television might be more you might be more inclined or disposed to certain ways of being if you're from this neighbourhood. I get you. Yeah, so that's a class habitus. And then you as a member of that class will, no, obviously you're not really a part of this community, you're from a different place. I can fake it. I faked it before. You meet somebody on the street and you're like, well, did you see the match? I wouldn't watch a fucking football match if it was on the back yard and would look out the window. Yeah. So what you're doing in that instance is you're dividing your habitus. Oh. So your personal habitus is not part of this class habitus. So you're now having to assimilate and divide your own habitus. So you're stretching yourself to pretend you're doing emotional labour. Mm. You're pretending like you somehow are part of this habitus. You're trying to be a chameleon and kind of blend into the habitus of the people here because it will gain you a better position within the field of this community if you're able to sound like somebody who understands Dublin football and is passionate about it and cares about it when the reality is you don't give a fuck right okay so you don't want anyone to know that but it's better for your capital it's better for your position Mm. that you pretend that it does so you're splitting your you're dividing your habitus you're acting as a chameleon but Eileen had to do that in every single situation of her life because she didn't have her own habitus. So she was a constant chameleon, dividing her habitus with every single new person that she met, with every single new place that she hitchhiked to. She was never her real self because she, she didn't never, have a real self. Exactly, exactly. 
Right. Well, she ne- not that she had never had a real self because habitus is not the the, the extent of you, yeah. but it's more kind of a bubble about kind of who you are. We all change our habitus we, to to some degree, mm. you know, to assimilate into different. I mean, things she's a person whatever. of no home. Like she was. That. Yeah, she really had a very vague habitus. I would say, I you know, th- thinking about Aileen, uh, Aileen Warnos, I do get shades of like young Jim Morrison about it, where it's like. Whatever happened to you when you were a kid? Like Jim Morrison was the son of a, a very high-ranking uh, naval officer, and he kind of like cast all that aside, and he took on he 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 split his habitus, and he took on this like Venice Beach kind of poet bum, sexy man, mm-hmm. you know, artist kind of vibe. And a lot of people did at the time. They cast off their own life, and they started making this new thing where you're like. Hey man, we're all cool cats, you know, like because you want to exist in that field of this new culture that's that's building up. And uh, as he grew into it, he started becoming the one who was setting the trends or whatever. Yes, but like I think of well, you see, now we were talking a little bit privately before we started the podcast mm, about cultural appropriation. Yeah. It's a lot easier for somebody to assimilate into well, not necessarily easier, but it's more it's very difficult to assimilate into an elite. Um, class habitus right. because those it, it tends to be more secretive like do you know what happens inside private schools do you know the no. like would you know how to you, like whereas if if a if a child from a an elite school was dumped out into a, a, a swap a school swap situation a school exchange mm. and put into a very very working class school they they would feel like they're able to tackle whatever comes ahead of them in terms of being able to fit in to that environment. Whereas you take a child from a working class school and dump them into an elite school, there's a whole, it, it's much more difficult for them to do that because there's a whole set of elite, it's like in it's Pretty Woman. It's easier to shed things than it is to grow things. Well, there's an assumption that, well, it's just, there there tends to be more secret, secrecy around the, and maybe more complexity sometimes around the, um, like when we were talking about Eileen mm. fitting in to the bad group or whatever, yeah. like it's easier to pick up the, the traits of like, oh yeah, well all I have to do to fit in here is drink, smoke and sleep with people maybe, you know, whereas if you want to be in the cheerleader squad, there's an awful lot... It, the, it's a, a lot more difficult. Up, like, mild bulimia. Exactly, it's an awful lot. Of, the, yeah. the 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 requisites to get in there are much much more tricky. You know, for somebody to navigate that. But the value of that is much higher. So, like the labour that you would put in, yeah, you get it back in. Value well, this is later. why you know you don't get a lot of working class children going to university, and it's not necessarily because they don't get the points because that's the way we operate here in Ireland. It's a meritocracy. Mm. It's because. They don't feel comfortable because um, universities are elite institutions mm. or at least middle class. The The curriculum is devised from by middle class people. The um, order of the school is devised by middle class people. So oftentimes students from working class areas, whereas a child from middle class background comes into a middle class environment, they're not having to divide themselves at all. Whereas a child from a working class background has to decide which one they're going to accept and which mm. one they're going to reject, essentially. So with child, you often get people from working class backgrounds that come into a university and decide, okay, I have to kind of maybe change my accent a little bit. I have to tone my accent down a little bit. I have to try to pick up the mannerisms that people hear. Instead of saying, you know what, I have a real working class accent. I like hip hop. I like this, this, this and this. And I'm bringing all of this cultural capital that I have with me. And I'm going to proudly bring that with me. But it, instead, there's this kind of 
feeling the need to be this chameleon and like reject. a sellout. A sellout is what they used to call it when I was. Do you know? Lad. There's a. Have you ever heard of an actor called Sidney Poitier? Yeah. So Sidney Poitier was from the Bahamas. You know, mm. and had a real a Bahami. Is it Bahamanian? Bahamanian. Yeah. Bahamanian. Bahamanian. <laughs> anyway, he moved to America, went to New York, wanted to become an actor, and they said, "No, you can't be an actor with an accent like that." And he worked as a as a porter in a hotel. Sydney, Sydney Porter. Sydney Porter. Yeah, yeah no, Sydney, no, Port- Porter. Sydney Porter. Yeah. Um, so he um, yeah listened to the radio, like some kind of posh radio station, whatever, and picked up the accent. He would have and the accent. Yes. Yeah. And he... The mid-Atlantic. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, he essentially had to reject his old habitus and take on the new habitus of, that would, because that was the cultural capital he needed to operate within the field of theatre in New York at the time. So cultural capital and the habitus is almost like the antithesis of cultural appropriation, where you're, like cultural appropriation means like taking something that's not from your background and inhabit, and uh, incorporating that into your current mm. identity. Whereas the splitting your habitus is like shedding something in order to take on something, take new. On something else. Yeah. Like it sounds like it's easier to go from like a posh school into a working class school. Maybe not because necessarily now I no, do you know what I mean, I, though, because like, maybe I'm not from an elite background, yeah. but I do. It's a story yeah. trope for a reason, like My Fair Lady or whatever. Like you have to learn a lot of extra stuff. Learn where which fork, uh, which fork is which. I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, you know? that was actually going to say about Pretty Woman. Pretty like, Woman. Yeah, yeah. She has to learn how to like do the knives and forks. She has to go down and try to find the guy who, who the waiter who's going to give her all the tips. Or but it's easy to fucking just like bum out and get get to the like if you're at the bottom of society, it's an awful lot easier. There's a lot less prerequisites, a lot less absolutely social contracts and stuff like exactly. that. Exactly, that and that's navigate. why. Poor Eileen, that's where she ended up a lot of the time because it was the easiest access for her. Right. You know? Yeah. So what how can you how can you like what's the what's the remedy for that then? Like you're just gonna have to learn. You're gonna have to my fair lady it. Well uh, You're gonna have to Pygmalion that shit. To some degree. Well, like take for example when she ended up with the president of the yacht club, she must have been able to do a Sydney Poitier on it to some degree sure. and feign and a couldn't, sense couldn't of keep it going for more than nine and weeks. Then, couldn't you go? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, but um yeah, you know, I guess the way children would pick up cultural capital, be socialised into it and gain confidence and mm. self-esteem is through achievement, I suppose, to some degree, or through meeting goals, yeah. setting a goal for themselves, achieving the goal and then repeating that. And eventually they build up a sense of confidence. But another one is... We Her spoke, self-esteem was so, so, so low. She had though. nothing. She had no self I don't think anything she did well. If she did anything well and someone went well done, she'd be like, what do you mean by that? Like there's always yeah, a... Yeah. A protectiveness, a defensiveness. But that's PTSD as well. Like she has a, she has mm. a. But again, know, the other um, an expectation, theory. an expectation of like a a, a, Being screwed a slap over. rather than a hug. Yeah, you know, totally, totally, and we get what we expect to a large degree. Yeah. The other theory that I kind of mentioned before we spoke about doing the podcast was oh, the, looking glass, the looking glass self. I can read a little bit just to give yeah. the audience a thing. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. Tell me all about it. I love, do you know what? It's, it doesn't happen often, but I, I love being, I, I like being lectured to like this, like just. Ah, sorry. And this, and, no, no, no. Like you're, you're, we're discussing it, but you're like, mm. and then this, and then this, and then this, and you're jigging around and you're so energetic <laughs> and you love it so much. And I'm like, preach, bitch, do it. Tell me what it is. Like it's, it's 
refreshing. I, see, I find sociology is actually so helpful in terms oh. of psychology. You know, so for conspiracy like, theories is what the whole shit is made up of. Man. I know, but if you like, if you like read a lot of these books about you know the law of attraction, all this kind of like self helpy kind of shit, and you read a sociology book and you're like, this is so fucking helpful. This like is this way is way more helpful. This is way more helpful mm. because it puts into like scientific context how the world works and how we fit in. It's about you know the individual and society, how the two meld together, and how we balance the two, and how you find your position. And you know, it's it's just really really helpful. We're yeah. even talking about like do you know uh, doing up a pizza gate episode, and we're talking about like how come the elite, like how can they, how would they be able to like get babies and like scare them and then like take their blood out and drink it because it's some kind of drug? Like what would possess you to do that? And I'm like. There's a sociological answer for that somewhere mm. where it's like they've re they've done everything Status, you could possibly yeah. do. This is like the the rarest of rare things that anyone can ever do. So like of course they're the, they're the top people in the whole planet. They're the most famous, most powerful people. Like they're going to do the most extreme shit. Do you know? Like mm-hmm. it's it's just there's a, there's a sociological answer behind everything, mm-hmm. especially with the true crime stuff when you're analyzing this. Um, why why do people do that? It's nearly always some shit happened when you're a kid. Yeah, yeah. And then you're like, you're normalized to it. And then you start going, I wonder if I do this. Or it's like someone getting back their power. Or there's an answer for everything. Yeah, yeah. We're all, I mean, it's, it's amazing how textbook we all are. Like mm. the passion, human patterns of humanity oh, man. are. So, so, so much easier. Yeah. When you know but what like the are. thing is, there go I for the grace of God or whatever, you know, like any one of us given these circumstances, as I, as Eileen Warner says, <laughs> yeah, like man. it's all circumstantial. If you found yourself in those circumstances, you know, um, but you look at the, look at the fucking opiate crisis in the US. There's a bunch of regular quote unquote normal people who like some lad gets a back injury in oh, school yeah. and then you get a fucking Whole town a thing of, of Oxycontin and yeah. then you're just like I love that actually where can I get more of that but you can't have any more Oxycontin well, what's like it have you tried this new thing called heroin and you're like <laughs> oh give us a shot of that like it happens so handy I know, you know? I to, know. to, to, to re- quote unquote regular people whereas I think the um, the presumption no more than we were talking about sex work earlier on. The presumption of someone who's addicted to opiates is someone who is down and out. Mm-hmm. They're bottom rungs of society. You've given up on life. Like you're, you're a junkie. Well, the two of them are different all. in that, like, sometimes people do like fall to the bottom because of whatever, like, yeah. m- internal things are going. But the the prior one that you were talking about, you know, like oh, I've watched a documentary about that. The entire towns in America where yeah, that whole yeah. thing has gone on, where they get the back pain and blah blah, and that's that's more of a systemic thing. So you've got the that's well, the, it's over the, over prescription as well. Yeah, like, so Purdue. There's a problem with their exactly. There's a problem with the American culture when it comes to overprescribing, and it's definitely happening here more and more often. You know, so it's kind of more a structural issue versus a kind of a the individual issue. The two can kind of meld together. The structural part has crashed the paradigm of like uh, opiate addiction is for down and outs. It's yes, like it's only the exactly. down and out oh, totally. to look for it. Yes. But as soon as middle class people started getting it, then it's an epidemic. Yes. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It was grand to have all the poor people taking it because yes. it's like keeps them off the streets. Totally. You know, yeah, yeah, very, yeah. very weird. So yeah, the looking glass self. Charles Horton Cooley introduced the concept of the looking glass self in 1902. And it's basically a reflection in our mind of how we appear in front of other people or how we are viewed by others. Is that be, would that be right? Yes. That'd be a good assessment? Yeah. Okay. So your sense of self is not just how you think about yourself internally. How you identify your personal qualities or your direct contemplation of your own identity, it is intertwined with how you are perceived by others in society as well. So this is the mirror which helps you judge how much you're worth, but it can be skewed, obviously. It's uh, perceptions of perceptions yes. is what it is, which is dangerous. It's what you think that they thought about you thinking about what they thought about yes, you. Yes, exactly. 
That was so exactly Eileen it. Warnos, her fucking, her I.O., her, 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 uh, uh, the conveyor belt of ideas going in and out. So the way it was, was like. brutally, brutally damaged. Totally. So like she was thinking, other oh. people were thinking of her. So she was acting out and getting all crazy. And then they were like, what a crazy bitch. And it's like, see, I told you, you thought you I was crazy. Mm. And you're like, how many people have done that expecting, like they act in a way that they expect, they act in a way that they expect other people to expect them to act. And then when they act that way, people go, I knew you were like that. It's like, see, I was right. Exactly. It's self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, man. It's so, yeah, it's crazy. So there are three steps to the looking glass self. How you appear to others like family or a randomer, how you must be evaluated based on uh, the way other people see you, or how you would like to be observed like pretty or smart or funny. So, and thirdly, development of yourself based on your judgment of how others observe you. So these elements are also interchangeable in their importance on how you judge the observer too, like with cultural capital. So social media is like this perfect petri dish for the discussion about the, the looking glass self where low follower counts mean unpopular or unsuccessful and then loads of followers means success and fame. But then more fame means more judgment, which may skew the perception of the self. So it's like uh, uh, like the three circles intersecting in some kind yeah, of like yeah. Venn diagram of accept, personal acceptance. So in, in, and this is for Eileen, in, pers- in borderline personality disorder, the looking glass self is self-shaming and feelings of shame and insufficient worth from traumatic experiences like abuse, neglect, abandonment can be a downward spiral into decisions that perpetuate those feelings like high-risk situations, drug abuse, risky sexual acts, all feeding the concept of the self through the skewed looking glass. Yes. So the looking glass self was almost Eileen Warnos's own downfall. Like it was a conveyor, a conveyor belt, like a, a Mobius strip of like bad self-image based on what other people thought of her, which made her act badly, which made people think bad of her, which made her exactly. act badly. A cycle, yeah. A, a really bad cycle. So the process of the looking glass self is alignment and the quest to have a consistency between the internal perception of the self. I feel like Deepak Chopra right now. The process of the looking glass self is alignment and the quest to have a consistency between the internal perception of the self and the outward treatment based on that perception. <laughs> it could yeah. be a catalyst to, I think, could be this, this looking glass self and how it's been uh, toxified could be the catalyst to this brand new epidemic of Karens that we have out in the world mm, now who yes. are acting out in restaurants and going, do you know who I am? It's like, I know who you are right now. You're a fucking cunt who's being too loud. Sit the fuck down and shut the fuck up. Do you know that there's been no children called Karen in Canada since that meme came out? Oh, I would imagine 2011. So. Not is, one single Karen child. done. <laughs> Karen's time has come and gone. Yeah, but I mean, like, the Karen is the perfect embodiment of what the looking glass self could be because, like, yeah. they want to act moral or they want to act, uh, uh, like, righteous. Because they think that people are seeing them as acting righteous. And then they do this ridiculous thing and they look around going, right? Thinking everyone should be going like, yeah, you go, girl. When really they're all going, you stupid cunt. Mm-hmm. And then well, she's, and then she gets angry because of that reaction. Mm-hmm. Because people are not putting up with that shit anymore. Whereas for a long time they were. And they were like, oh, I'm not going to get involved. Now they're like, boo to you, sit down. She's like, hey, you're not supposed to react like that. So the looking glass self is... Mm-hmm skewed you know? yes yeah yeah totally so like the way that we all get a sense of ourselves like every single person who's in our life acts as some kind of a mirror towards us mm. if the postman 
gave you, like, sneered at you as he was giving you the post this morning. Why did he do that? You, you're thinking, why did he do that? Does he have a, what perception does he have of me? How has he gotten this person? We create these stories in our head, yeah. you know, like, I must have done something. So we may try to act overly nice the next time we see this person, or the opposite. We may say, fuck them, I'm just going to ignore this person or mm. whatever. Based on their cultural capital. Uh, based There's on the no need, yeah, based on the need to engage with them, yeah. you know, so... If someone someone in the shop you're only ever going to be in one sneers at you, you're like, fuck you, because you never be exactly. back. Exactly. That person be- holds no purchase in your life, as you yeah. would say, yeah. So, so you want to be nice to your boss Whereas, if the cool kid in school completely ignores you or snubs you or whatever, or you perceive them to snub you, you might really take that personally and start to think, well, what is about me that has been judged if you have if you are a very kind of a absorbent kind of a person of other Mm. people so somebody like Eileen Warnus didn't have a very strong sense of herself so again we have our primary socialization unit which would usually be your family your secondary ones which would be schooling like your friends and your peers in school teachers and stuff like that and then your friend groups outside of school or whatever and usually your family when you think about being a kid how your your parents have this unconditional love for you no matter what you do they care about you they they really well well, for the little kids generally they will reinforce a sense of your goodness and a sense of your worth and a sense of you know just you being a good all around good person at your your behavior might be bad encourage your skills exactly Exactly. she never had any of that the exact opposite the only value that she ever seemed to have for anybody was as a to be abused for sex, sex as to be as a sex object so she only made granddad happy when he was blowing his beans yes and then she continued that on that like put that out to herself i suppose with the, her friends or whatever thinking unbeknownst to her that this was not an appropriate behavior well, this is a way to make people like me yes. because it makes it yes. makes and then as she would have grown older she would have realized that perhaps this isn't a good so her perceptions of how her value was where she got her value from were totally skewed yeah. totally that looking glass was all over the so but she had she as a result of not having strong views mirrored back to her from parents or siblings who loved her and cared about her and had her best interests at heart she had no sense for herself so the, the it's like the goalposts were constantly changing this guy said I was really nice because I gave him a blowjob last night or had sex with him or whatever all, I thought all these guys off the football team really liked me but now I realise that they were taking advantage of me oh no you know like so it's like this constant changing of her perception of what's right and what's wrong, what's who I am, am I rooted in other people though. Always rooted, always. but that's what all of us, all of us, our perceptions of of ourselves are rooted in other people. I think is that, is that not like the 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 balance that we want to try to find the 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 mix of like how we feel about ourselves inside, but not as children. How other people if you haven't treat been, us if you haven't been given a sense of yourself as a child, if somebody mm. hasn't bolstered, if if go, so in Ireland you have this whole concept of the one good adult, you know that children, every child should have one good adult. They rolled it out to the Department of Children and Youth Affairs or something okay. rolled it out. It is a really important concept. Yeah. Having one, even one good adult in your right. life, that's somebody who is respectable, responsible and um, reliant, who you can have in your life, who who you trust their opinion. Would they reflect something back to you? That's a, that is enough to get you through and kind of like, let like you... An, like an honest mirror to give yeah, you back like exactly, genuine exactly. feedback. Or exactly. Truthful but supportive and encouraging. Like how many people does everybody have in their life that 
would be that honest about the reflection back. Like, and it doesn't necessarily mean if you come from an elite family, you have that. You, you have some no, it's people, anybody. Like, if, I don't know if you watched The Crown, yeah. but like Prince Charles was uh, sent off to some god awful like boarding school in the middle of nowhere. He was really badly bullied. He was, mm. you know, his father really put him under a huge amount of pressure and seemed to look down at him because he wasn't strong or sporty or whatever else. You know, just because you come from, it's not a class thing. You know, we kind of think, oh, maybe somebody like Eileen who's exposed to poverty or, you know, sexual abuse or whatever. It, this can happen in any class, you know, that a child is not reinforced with a strong sense of themselves. But you know, often vulnerable people are people who have are looking towards other people for validation because they ha- they don't already have this strong bolstered sense of themselves. So it's kind of like the habit. The Pierre Bourdieu's concept of the habitus is about how we embody different aspects of ourselves, like physical, of sometimes physical attributes like accent and mannerisms and how we walk and how we talk and but we change those know. things based on the looking glass self yes but then the looking glass self is more of an internalised kind of a, 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 a it's kind of like more the process of how that happens is it the looking glass self that, that yeah. reflecting that reflecting how so so you, you so you go you go to a posh school and the looking glass self is telling you jeez man people think you're a fucking culture people think you're a country bumpkin yes you're going to have yeah. to change up that accent and not be going how to go about how to get none you're going exactly. to have to start to imitate these motherfuckers so then your habitus changes yes you you Based, split your habitus you divide the habitus divide the habitus yeah, and yeah, you, yeah. Leave, you leave the culture yeah. behind yeah and then you start into yeah, yeah, this yeah. new habitus so you can yeah. succeed in the field so we do we, we form is that right am I bullshitting yeah, that's totally okay, perfect cool, yeah. cool, cool. so we like we, we make and recreate and reproduce ourselves based on we we, sh- we hone ourselves based on those reflections and maybe we get a really positive reflection of somebody we do not respect at all and we think oh I'm going to going to tweak myself a little bit now so yeah. I don't quite get this reaction from this for person for a long time I I I I thought people were treating me in a way that I was like I deserve to be treated a bit better than this. What the fuck am I doing wrong? But then your project, it could have been because... Maybe I thought you, I was you were, deadly though. Yeah, but you might have been projecting, I don't know, maybe you were projecting a, sometimes say in the likes of Aileen Mornos, she's projecting a view of herself that is very, a poor view of herself out to other people. And then people are the reflecting inter- that same. Like, it seems like she was putting out a thing that belied what she thought about herself inside because... She was saying like I'm like Jesus I'm like I'm the best thing ever Like I'm fucking Best thing since sliced bread Like she was She was fully like I am awesome With her words And her, her kind of bravado Now that could have been a, That could have been a, Like a fake presentation A yeah. fake projection of herself Because she wanted to It's kind of like the, uh, the idea of the law of attraction You know as you think So shall it be If you say this mm. long enough But unfortunately The The habitus yeah. is more of an Embodied Ingrained right. Thing and that can come from the, the, of your identity, the identity part of your habitus. That will come from years and years and years, but of belief that is built up from action, action and belief. You know, you know, she's had all these bar bar fights. She's been arrested numerous times. That's her feel for the game. You know, like whenever she was put in a corner, when she was asked to react and not proactively, like, like you know, return a, a like when she gets into the car with a with a John. That's proactive. She's going. She's going like, okay, I'm here for a reason, and blah blah blah. And they end up sucking a dick. But when she's in a bar and someone hunches into her, and she's like, hey, what the fuck? They're like, what the fuck you? It's like, what the fuck you? Well, boom! And she starts headbutting cunts. Mm. Like that's her feel for the game. Like that's her natural state. Yes, possibly. Yeah. So she reacted in that way, which got her in trouble most of the time. 
when she's in those job interviews, she's sitting there trying to... Yes, trying to... Trying to, to be... She's totally splitting her habitus at that yeah. point. She is... The emotional labour that she is going through to try to assimilate yeah. into that environment. And then the crack that she's like, well, fuck you, pencil dick! <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, like, we all... this, All of us go through those processes, but not to the same difficulty level that Eileen yeah. would have had to have. She's at the bottom of the barrel. She really wise. hit the bottom of the barrel like, and just she seemed to hit every fucking branch on the tree on the way down as what, she was going. What, what do you think, like, what do you think was, we, we, we're finished the, the episode now essentially, but like with this kind of thinking in mind, what do you think was um, like when you think about Arlene Pratt? Biggest factor. She was looking for a mirror. She was looking for somebody to reflect something positive back to her. And and she wanted to be a good Christian person who takes care of people. Yeah. And she was going to take on Eileen like a pet project mm-hmm. to make herself feel better and to make a few bob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fucked. What do you think about like what is what were the major factors that kept Eileen at that bottom of that sociocultural barrel that she couldn't get out like she couldn't go and get that job and uh, as a checkout girl she couldn't go and get yeah. that I like think even even like do you know just to just to get it she wasn't even mad about drugs she wasn't even like a mad junkie she wasn't even mad yeah, yeah. she wasn't a mad alcoholic or anything like that it was just just a load of bad life choices like how 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 does anybody escape how does anybody from, escape from that well i guess it is trying to Set up your like as children, obviously, we're reliant on other people to some degree. We need somewhere to live, we need to be fed and clothed. We don't have an in, we're not capable of independence. But I think to some degree, especially if you're being rejected constantly, there's a need for this acceptance. If you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs or Mm. something like that, I think for people who are finding it very, very difficult to be validated, you know, I think a large, um, it's the knowledge that you can act independently, a knowledge that you can take yourself out and kind of say, you know, I'm just going to quietly live a peaceful life by myself or create a, a peaceful space for myself. But again, it's very, very difficult because those people are predisposed to creating, recreating and reproducing the chaos that they've already experienced. How so do you get rid of that chaos? Those the thing. <laughs> Deepak Chopra would tell you it's about being able to meditate I know it sounds crazy are you counselling are you you trying to talk that stuff through are you trying to figure out where your motivations come from how you feel about the stuff trying to get a different perspective yeah Yeah, and often the the role of a counsellor or a psychotherapist or whatever is to be able to act as a mirror a positive mirror and show you that maybe you're not quite as bad a person as you think that you are Mm. but it's to be able to detach yourself away from the group not and and realise that you're not reliant on the group for your validation, that the validation has to essentially come from yourself as an adult. We can get stuck in the rut like a child that never really grows up quite quite well. Did I think you, I think Eileen was stuck in that. She got stuck in the rut yeah. of the needing the validation. Like did you watch um that a documentary The Imposter? It was about this guy who um a French guy who convinced this American family that he was their child that had gone missing. So fucked up, right? But he said himself, right, in the documentary that he had, I mean, he had, he had brought himself, he was 25 and he he walked into, he's pretending he was a 17 year old boy. And the whole reason that he was doing this, going into like children's homes and juvenile detention centers saying, you've got to take me on board because, was because he had such a shitty Childhood. He so he's another swing at it. He, yeah. he he wanted to be treated like a child. He wanted mm. to keep trying for this childhood that he he never had. He wanted to be minded. He wanted to be. He, he, he should you have know. just waited fifteen years, and now that's like a, a you know a sexual preference. 
Yeah. <laughs> no, there it is. But there's, pretending to be a child. Yeah, there's like a dude who's in his like late fifties, and he sexually identifies, uh, you know, se- yeah, sexually identifies mm. as a six year old girl. Yeah. And he puts but, his but hair in pigtails. People haven't. And he's found a pair a pair of parents oh, that are willing to take care of him and mind him like a six year old girl. And yeah, it's, there's a whole thing there. Like you know, yeah. he just he just your man just missed the boat a little bit. So I guess it's to try to say like, look, to, to take stock of your life and say, look, I'm actually an adult now at this stage. It's time for me to try to be, it's very difficult to, to realise that when you're stuck in a cycle, but to say, you know, I'm an adult now, I need to be independent and look out for myself and kind of try to create an independent view of myself that isn't reliant on the rejection or acceptance of other people. You know what, I think she tried to do that a few times, like she got that money from her brother dying and she was like, okay, it's time to fucking straighten out. No, no. I think she was always trying to. It always was. It was always on other people. She was always looking. So in that case, she wanted to get that wash. She wanted the acceptance of this guy. She she wasn't going to do it on her own. She, she should have just set up her own washing business, bought the mm. stuff, and set up her own thing, yeah. and done it for a while, and met somebody who had their own thing going on. But she always wanted this codependency kind of thing where she. She wanted someone to love her. Exactly. Everybody does. It's the most primitive, most primitive thing on the planet for yeah. to, to want to love. Um, but as anybody will tell you, you can't be loved unless you learn to love yourself, you know? That's the, <laughs> the Irish Deepak Chopra. <laughs> so yeah, do you it's know what? Lurpak Murphy. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not yeah. going to be the one to, to give the clues on how to, you know, undo a, a psychopathic serial murderer. <laughs> but that's the thing. I, I would think, say I think that, that would. Like, she, she had such low self-esteem and she wasn't getting any, like her, it was so ingrained in her identity. Uh, that she was just like, look, I'm a dick sucker. That's all I'm good for. But you had so many the, fake mirrors she, around her. Like, but as soon as so she shot that mirrors. guy, mm-hmm. she transformed. I think. I think so too. From yeah. a dick sucker into a gun shooter. A, a powerful woman. It wasn't. It wasn't. Like, it wasn't gun shooter. She just. A, some. I think she saw herself as a superhero, vigilante, feminist kind of. I don't think, it was, I don't think it was that far. Yeah, you go on mm. and tell it, but I don't. I don't. I think. Agree. I think. Well, I think she had the surge of empowerment. She was no longer the victim. She was no longer the bottom of the barrel. She was the most powerful person in that situation, and she was victorious in some way. That's the way I. I would have. I think it was a reaction against. And not probably not the first time she had been like violently sexual assaulted during like a transactional, you know, sex mm. encounter. Um, and it was just like she had it had enough. And she went, boom. Oh, I didn't even think about that as an option. Like I've never killed anybody before. But if anyone deserved to die, it was this motherfucker who's pouring alcohol in my arse and, mm. and fanny and, and nose and mouth mm. after he's like fucking raped me with a wheel brace. Mm. Like deserving, yes, yes. So the next time anyone tries that shit, bang bang. She, no, I don't think so. In the first one, I think I think she probably felt empowered after she had yeah. done it. I don't think she premeditated that. I don't feel like. So the let's first get one into one. the off the fence parts of it then. So yeah. for 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 her upbringing, we've we've bet that to death. I think uh, we know that her upbringing probably put her into those situations. We can both agree on that, right? Yeah. It's not. It was. It was uh, uh, nurture over nature. I don't think she had a bad nature. Mm. I think it was like a whole load of shitty things happened to her uh, incessantly for her whole life and it conditioned her into becoming the yes. the adult that she grew into, right? I think so. Um, so then the 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 serial killer thing, the, the, the prostitute thing, that first killer, he was a fucking convicted sex offender and should have been in jail and should have never had any opportunity to go mm-hmm. near anybody again. But he got out and he assaulted her. She reacted by killing him. Was that justified? 
if it was self-defense, then I would say yes. Because it was him or her at that point, right? Yeah, I would say it's justified. If she, if it's in self-defense and somebody was treating me like that, I, I just don't think I would. But then again, as you said, if you're carrying a gun, there must be some element of figuring out in your head how you might potentially use that, right? <laughs> You've got to be ready to use them, man, you yeah, know, for sure. So if I, if I, if I well, obviously we don't have the opportunity to carry guns in this country, but if I did for whatever reason, end up in that situation where I was working as a hooker and carrying a gun with me, I'm sure I would have figured out in my head how I might potentially use that gun at, gun at some stage. There's going to be some, if you're carrying a gun as a, as a working prostitute, especially in the risky situation she was putting herself in, there's going to be like a maybe unspoken or, or what would you call it, like oblique kind of set of rules that you would be like, okay, I don't know why I'm carrying this gun. I know it's for shooting people. But there's something goes on. Like I mean, you you have your you have your la your your last straw. Mm-hmm. Like somewhere you might not know. Like this is the fucking last straw until it happens. Mm-hmm. And when you're getting fucking buggered by a wheel brace, you're like, this is the last straw. Mm-hmm. I'm tied to the fucking steering wheel of this car. But I wonder. This if, shit is happening. Yeah, but I wonder. Last, I'm, t- like, I'm shooting this. Concert. When the floodgates open on something like that, do you know that kind of way? Like, is it just easier? After that, like, do you ever hear, you know, Deirdre O'Kane, she, talk, she tells this story, like, it's very funny about her sister was an air hostess. Like, she's talking about emotional labour, and that was mm. the first example of emotional labour used by Arlie Hostile, that air hostesses, you know, kind of had to be polite constantly. Mm. And she, Deirdre O'Kane tells a story about how her sister, um, you know, worked in first class for this airline, whatever, and that some guy was really, really pissing her off, and she told him to fuck off. And the guy, like, got her in trouble, whatever, and she was supposed to come down and apologise, and she, he called her over. And he goes, you're supposed to come down and apologize. She goes, I thought I told you to fuck off. <laughs> but like, like, obviously, I'm assuming like she got suspended or like got put down into coach or whatever. Some kind of consequences for that, that she didn't kind of do that again or whatever. Mm. She could kind of thought, maybe I'll get away with this one fucking time. Say, say well, I'm already in trouble for it. Yeah. But she had obviously made a contract but with herself to go like, I'm, if you this owned is my... the aircraft yeah. and you were like, I, and once the floodgates were open on that, I'd be like, you know what? Somebody's acting the dick. I am going to tell them to fuck off every because it felt bloody good that time. Dude, I remember being in a retail situation and the floodgates opened for me when someone was acting a dick and I was like, come here, man, you're being a fucking arsehole. Get the fuck out. They were like, you can't talk to me that way. I'm going to complain to your boss and my boss standing beside me and I was like, isn't he either being a dickhead for the last 25 minutes and my boss is kind of like, kind of, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> so get the fuck out. There's other shops. Get the fuck out of here. He's like, I can't believe this. I'm going to go on Facebook and tell everybody. But I was like, okay, man, go tell your 32 friends on Facebook. Uh, like this. And I felt savage. And I did that shit every day for three years. <laughs> you were like the alien awareness of the car shop phone wear shop or whatever. Yeah, phone wear shop. <laughs> It's 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 just an it's just an empty lot during the day, but at night time in the full moon, it turns into a shop. Whoa. Uh, yeah, the it's fucking late. the fucking like people would just be annoying, and I'd be like, "No, you're too annoying. Fuck off now. If you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you back. If you're going to be a dickhead, and I tell people, come here, you're being a dickhead. If you stop being a dickhead, I'll help you. But until then, no." Like, but I worked what? with a guy, right? I worked with a guy, like, like, but I do that every day, and it made people go, "Okay, man, I'm sorry." Like, you're you're a person as well. I kept that's what was one of my things I said, like maybe three times a week. Hey, man, I'm a I'm a person. I'm a real person. Talk to me like I'm a. Per- I didn't fucking do this to you. This is a thing that happened. I'm representing a company. I didn't do it. It's not personally blaming me. And they were like, "Oh, okay." Like it worked. The, the yeah, food yeah. gets open for me, and it worked. 
But I could see how, like, you personalized yourself. If you were like, um, if you were, uh, like in um, Silence were, of the Lambs, <laughs> it rubs lotion on itself. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, it has a name. Yeah, yeah. But like, <laughs> I was like, no, I'm getting out of this fucking tunnel or whatever. Take the dog. But like, as soon as I broke the cherry, I was like, this is it. This is how I'm going to be. I'm, I, I can't. I couldn't enact the emotional labour. Yeah, but I think yeah, so nice I think Eileen just gave up so much of herself, just de depersonalized herself for anybody else's, anybody else's whim. You know, yeah, for their gratification. And eventually, there was just so little of but her somewhere, left. But somewhere deep inside, she had made that conscious to go, okay, if, I, if it reaches this, I'm out. Yeah. Like, she wasn't willing to die, let's say. Yes. That's like the... The ultimate sacrifice for somebody else's bottom, gratification. Yes, yeah, it's the yeah. bottom line for everybody. Um, And when faced with that, she was like, no, fuck that, bang. Maybe in the next seven shootings or the next six shootings, uh, the transgression from the prostitution customer may not have been as egregious as the first guy, mm. Mallory. Maybe her looking glass self was a bit skewed. And when they were kind of like, oh, yeah, why don't you give it a little suck? Like in the movie, that was what kicked mm -hmm. off one of the situations. Uh, just give it a little suck first. So you didn't pay for that. I said, suck it, bitch. And he's like, okay, bang, 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 bang. Yeah, but see, my like point in relation to the, mm. the looking glass self, I feel like it must have been a great, after the years, like 33 years of nonstop abuse from every single person almost in her life mm. who she encountered, to have that feeling, that empowerment feeling of this fucker who's just raped her so horrifically and dehumanised her so horrifically. The I imagine she was for the first time in her life the looking glass self. She was getting this glow inside of she saved herself. She empowered herself. She was the victorious one. She conquered this scumbag. This is the future. She, you know, I really feel she saw for the first time something capable in herself. And I wonder, did she start to kind of... Was she a little you're, bit? You're going for like she turned into a prostitution superhero. She touched. No, 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 but not, not really that. But just that she felt strong and empowered by that action and looked to to relive that action herself. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like being a, being a but, searching out men to be like, oh yeah, you think you're a big man now, getting a hooker? Well, I'm going to shoot you, bang. Or was yeah, it I don't like, know whether she was searching out, man. Because as you said, there was the like loads says. of... The movie says yeah, that she yeah, was yeah. searching out dudes. No, 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 no. I don't feel that. I don't feel that either. But I feel like maybe, it, whereas if somebody was being on it, if she was an air hostess and somebody was consistently rude to her for the whole fight, the first time, like really ridiculously rude, like no way this person should be on the flight. They're just rude. And then by the time, she, and she just liked so much telling them to fuck off the first time and she just got so empowered by it after mm. 33 years of, and then the, maybe the next time somebody like, you know, kind of spilled a drink on her, she was like, you know, fuck that. You can fuck off yeah, you too and you, you can fuck off and you can fuck off and you can fuck off. You know, that kind of, like I'm just saying maybe her standards got a bit lower. The That's more she, yeah, the, the transgressions that she perceived yes. as like personal attacks. Yeah, it wasn't like a full-on wheelbarrow rape. But it was just like a guy pushing the boundaries too much. Is like you deserve yeah. it, bang bang. But it definitely seems like she got more confident and empowered yeah. with the shooting when she was doing more and more of it as each victim progressed. Right, as her bullet count would indicate. Yes. I think maybe she's getting get, was getting good to her. Yeah. What about then uh, um, the murders as they escalated do you think then that it started to get good to her that she was starting to enjoy it or was this as fact and uh testimony would dictate it wasn't her out seeking out murders it was like one of like 30 or 40 
one every 30 or 40 who'd act the maggot while the sexing was happening. And then she'd be like, no, don't do that. And like, shut up, bitch. And then she's like, okay, here comes the gun. Do you think it was like, which, which, which do you think it was? Do you think it was like she was seeking out these dudes as, uh, no, I'm going to rob you instead of having to have sex with you because no. I'm not having sex with men anymore? Or I don't think so. I just don't think so. You think it was just like a happenstance, like if they got rough that she yeah. just pulled a gun? I, I think, yeah, I think so, but maybe I'm just being generous in my thoughts. I don't know, obviously. I I haven't, well. But I don't, I just don't think that she was willy-nilly seeking out men kind of thinking, do you know what, I don't want to do any hooking tonight. What I'll do is I'll just, just pull somebody over, rob them, take yeah. their car and dump, dump them. I just think she would just rob a, she would just rob a convenience store if she wanted to do that, I think. Mm. You know, I I just don't that just it's just not logical that yeah. would, it doesn't seem like it's in her character as much as we don't know her or whatever. Yeah. What do you think then about her integrity? So with the Broomfield docs, we got to see a side of it at the movie as a show. And that all the shit on YouTube doesn't display, I think. Very hard to discern any kind of reality from the stuff on YouTube. The Broomfield stuff shows her from her own voice. The first one is like it was self defense. And the second one is like I, I did it, I'm a murderer, please send me to the fucking chair because if I say it was self-defence, they'll keep me in jail forever. Yeah. Like, do you think that she was telling the truth all along or do you think she changed her mind to be executed? I, like, think, she changed her, I think she changed her mind at various points along the way. And I'm sure she, I, I'm sure to some degree she believed herself at all different points. Mm. Do you know? I just think um, when you've got somebody who's got a mental health disorder like that, very, very it's mental, difficult very to it's difficult to assess what's what's real and what's not to them because it might be very very real to her at the time that she thinks like I I saw footage of her wailing when she had just been arrested for the first one and she said she, you know she was she did them all she's like I wish I never got that gun yeah. I wish I was never a prostitute I wish I never yeah yeah yeah. Stuff. yeah you yeah. know and it's like I, I don't know I do think that she believed that she was it was self-defense in all of them but to what degree it was self-defense against somebody maybe being cheeky with you verbally towards the end, maybe, yeah, maybe as opposed to, to yeah. Mallory at the beginning, who was overtly, I mean, it was her life was on the line, you know? Maybe it was, and this is what I think, maybe it was that her self-esteem was so low at the time that Mallory attacked her that defending her life was a justification for killing. But as her self-esteem grew with yes. the amount of her body count, she started to feel more self-worth. She started to feel like uh, she deserved more out of life. She was trying to get normal jobs, trying to get out of the game. So when she did resort to going back two, three, four, five times a week, hooking every day, making four, three or four hundred dollars a week, which is a lot for 1991, like mm-hmm. uh, she's making four hundred dollars a week. If anyone was going to give her any shit because her self-esteem has risen. Yes. She would take it as much more of a, an insult than she would have before the Mallory attack. Before the Mallory attack, she was used to being shit on a shoe. She was a fucking doormat. Everyone would give her shit. She and accepted she just take that. it. She'd she just take that. it. But then she made a decision at some point to be like, I'm not taking this shit no more. And obviously these guys, they're frequenting truck stop hookers. They're used to talking shit to people and treating women poorly and paying them very small amounts of money for like rough truck stop prostitute sex. Mm. And she was like, no, I'm not taking that off you. Stop it. You gonna treat me like a lady. Stop it, I said, <laughs> or bang. And then she started, like, the, the transgressions became less. Yes, uh, yeah, very possibly. But it was the same, it was the same reaction 
based on how high her self-esteem exactly. was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So towards the end, she did feel like Jesus. She was like, I am Jesus Christ. She said that in one of the things. She's like, I'm the embodiment of Jesus. I'm going to come back. Like, this is, I am fucking, you, you, society railroaded me. And they did that to Jesus too. Like yeah, she got this mess, my ass. messianic yeah. thing going on. Yeah, like yeah. She was like, I am do- doling out the, the vengeance of the Lord. Mm-hmm. She got really into Jesus. Like, I definitely think... But when you do, she taught in her head when we think about people being like Jesus being crucified for mm. our sins, that is what the concept of society creating a monster is. Like we, the society, have to hold ourselves responsible in some way for like if you think about Ireland and, um, you know, all of the crimes that were in our midst that we did not, we turned a complete and utter blind eye to. Yeah. Women in Magdalene laundries until 1991. Yeah. You know, and people, every person in every community knew what was going on. People turned a blind eye to it, you know. And it's like, stuff like this goes on. Like, people turned a blind eye to it. Like, the amount of people that would have had to have turned a blind eye to every single shitty thing that happened to her. You know, it's kind of like... That, that is a kind of a very uh, Jesuitical kind of a, yeah, yeah. you know, kind of a view of things that Christ died for our sins. That Aileen Warnos was crucified in one way because we all, as a side, obviously we weren't alive at the time or whatever, she was born or being abused or whatever, yeah. but like that, that the wider society were responsible for her sins in one sense, that they let it, let her, her get so lost and so turn into what she did but but for somebody who's so uneducated uh she was able to verbalize that very she very well really was. it's amazing when somebody is on the brink i know when i'm at my angriest i'm yeah. also at my most verbose yeah. i am like like my mom always says to me like, you should have been a barrister like yeah like i i am very reticent you know i tend <laughs> to bottle things up a lot but when i have reached the fucking bottom of yeah. my barrel well i tell you i can fucking spew out like a shotgun exactly You're so like articulate <laughs> muhammad ali giving all that stuff like <laughs> Why did you not put the dishes in the sink? If I was so fast, I turn off the lather in bed before it gets dark. But fucking like doing all these, all it's these like, raps. But it's amazing shit. how 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 focused you become when you have just been like you know fuck it enough yeah. is enough now. Focus and articulation it's like, it's like go a, hand in hand. You know the mother that lifts the car off the baby or whatever. Like yeah, it's like yeah. superpower. Yeah, just kind of, kind of this focus and power comes from like a surge of yeah ability. Yeah, I think she had, um, and then the, the, this. This is one of, the, one of the last questions I think she had. Um, she had the number of the police that were trying to get at her. The the uh, Arlene and Steve, the fucking money grubbers. Uh, she knew she knew people were out to get her for money. They wanted to get rid of her. She had this like persecution complex, definitely that she was out. People were out to get her. They were poisoning her food. They were doing all this stuff. Like <sighs> everything that was overt and everything that was visible mm-hmm. showed that. And then the things that she came out and said, like they're, pu- they're fucking pissing and coming in my, in my potatoes, mm-hmm. uh, the fucking putting like noise, weird noises coming on my TV to, to hypnotize me or drive me crazy. Um, they're gaslighting her, they're gang stalking yeah, yeah. her or whatever to make her go mental. So she'd kill herself. So they could be rid of her without having to execute her. Um, and then of course the whole thing of like the one thing that she did want was to be executed. And they were almost going to take that off her too. Do you think the overt things that we've been shown would would maybe intimate that the things that she said that we hadn't seen were also true? Do you think she was telling the truth? Is she does she have integrity as a witness or is she lying to try and build up her own legend? 
when she tells all those stories about how important she is and how much like everyone's trying to get her to die so that they can make a movie out of her. Like in 1994, she was saying some of this stuff. And then in 2001, she was definitely like she was full balls out. Like they want to kill me to make my movie. And then the movie gets made is a massive hit and wins the actress an Oscar. Like she's not wrong. The yes. story was a whopper. Yes, yeah, totally. So but, do you think yeah. she's lying about the stuff that we didn't see and lying to Nick Broomfield? I think, oh no, I think she 100% believes it herself. Now whether that was paranoia or mental health or whether it was true, I would believe that that co- is possible that that could be true. Mm. Whether it was happening or wasn't like the happening. the police got fired. Yeah. We know for a fact that Steve and Arlene were trying to scalp oh, yeah, totally. 25 grand out of Nick Broomfield for a documentary and were talking on uh, Aliens' behalf. Um, there was, But there was a load of stuff about everything else that we didn't see that she was like those guys tried to rape me so I shot them like if everything else outside was proven true like she was saying they're trying to make a movie about me and that's why they want me to kill myself yeah and then they did try to make a movie and then the cops were caught on the phone and they were fired surely then we should believe that when she says these lads were trying to rape me so I shot them we should believe that too Yes. Yes. Sorry. That, that's actually that is actually yeah. I I didn't I didn't see it. when you you'd make a good lawyer yourself actually. I'm telling you what. Well, you you presented that argument. Extraordinary claims <laughs> require extraordinary evidence. So her extraordinary claims were that they're trying to gangstalk me and they're railroading mm. me into a death sentence because they want to get their election uh, victory. Yeah. 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 And then everything else panned out really. And then Jeb Bush signs her fucking death warrant against the rules of psychiatric evaluation for people who are to be capitally Mm -hmm. punished. And then he gets elected in in the next thing. It is, is, I mean, it does beggar belief, really. The whole, I mean, the whole story from her birth to her death is just so wild. And It just came to me now, what's actually fucking mentally crazy, insane in fact, is that Jeb Bush signed in her execution. And he was the one was the, oh my God, Aileen Warnos may have had a hand in the start of the Afghanistani and Iraq war. Oh. Because Aileen Warnos was in Florida at the time and Florida was the swing state in the, e- in the election. That so George true. W. Bush was going up against Al Gore and there was a lot of improprieties in the voting in Jeb Bush's uh, That's uh, right. state. So that, that he, got, he got elected in because he fucking like railroaded Aileen yeah. Warnos. So he got in, he had power over the election. He fiddled all the votes, got George W. Bush elected. And then 9-11 happened. And then they were going to war in Afghanistan under George W. Bush instead of Al Gore, who would have been like, save the whales or whatever. Mm. Like Aileen Warnos' execution. Kind of, kind of paved the way for him. That, yeah, absolutely. I've never heard anyone say that. Go on to me. That just came to me there now. <laughs> You look back at the video and I'm like, <laughs> wait a second. This is the, that's the conspiracy part. Brain erection. Yeah, that's, that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Like she had all of those motherfuckers like pinned. It's like butterfly effect for sure anyway. I think, I think like she said, like they're trying to do it for elections. They're trying to do it for the, mov- for the movie. They're trying to do it for this. So surely you must believe everything she said because everything she accused people of, however unbelievable at the time, turned out to be true. So surely we should believe her innocence when she said... I was just responding to their violent sexual advances. I'd well believe she was. She was that, that she encountered violence. I in well over half of the punters that she had mm. for sure. Anyway, yeah. But um, I don't know. You, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, you it's could hard, believe it. I think. Yeah, yeah I think you, you definitely could. could. Yeah. So that's it for Eileen Warnos. It's uh, it's late in the day. We've bet this one to death, uh, metaphorically. Um, there's a lot in it. 
and I will be doing live chats about uh, about this in the future and about sexy work stuff in the future. So if you have anything that you want to add, you want to send me anything, info at thoseconspiracyguys.com is the email address and uh, join in the Discord for more chats about this. I'm sure there'll be links, videos, discussions, all sorts of stuff. And if you want to watch any of these live shows or you indeed you want to watch this uh, or listen to this ad-free, patreon.com slash thoseconspiracyguys. Uh, there's a link in the description below with all the social medias and all the places that you can reach me on. And, uh, you know, fuck Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. But if you're still on them and you want to DM me, I'll send you the invite for the Discord, which is where it's all happening. So please get onto that. That's it for this episode of Those Conspiracy Guys. All that leaves me left to do is say thank you to my wonderful guest, Grania McKeever. Thanks for thank having you, me. Where can people find you online? Or do you want people to find you online? Or oh, do you, you can, care? You, you can just come and say hello. Chats? Yeah, no, come and say hello. I'm on Twitter. Just Grania McKeever. Ask Grania McKeever. At Grania McKeever, yeah, that's I put, it. I put the link below. And yeah. you have, do you have a website? Do you um, have a... Uh, no. Is, there's a sociology podcast about, in your future, I would imagine. I would love to do a sociology I podcast at some stage. Yeah, I really, really would. But um, yeah, no, I've got about 200 uh, followers on Twitter and always up. willing to add more. <laughs> you're, share, you're sharing all of this kind of stuff. You did, you, did, you, you did a TED Talk. I did a TED Talk on the Looking Glass Elf, actually, yeah. So Magic. it was many moons ago when we were little stand-up comedians doing our thing together. <sighs> the hunger um, for the stage. <laughs> So yeah, so we, could I, um, been, we could have been roadside murderers ourselves. Only we found comedy. Yeah, it was kind of when I started doing the PhD, I suppose, and cool. kind of merging. The so idea. did I sound like a bumbling toddler trying to describe that then? No, that was perfect. Was it okay? Yeah, yeah I got it, it from a few different sources and mixed and matched it. Yeah, and it was really, really good. Okay, cool. Well, we, we, we'll we'll put a link to your TED talk below so people can get Deadly. a little bit more. And um, yeah, if you want to reach out to to Grania and ask her about her uh, her interests or any of her expertise, I'm sure you might join in the live chat for like a half an hour to answer a few, or yeah. at least to find out the answers from sex workers who were going Definitely. to be listening to the show. Um, yeah, so that's it for those conspiracy guys for this time. That was uh, Eileen Warnos. A sad tale, tragic. Very, very, very very interesting. Very sad. Um, Yeah, that's it. My name's Gordo. I'm Grania. And uh, we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye.